Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale, episode 30, with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And it's here, we've watched it not once but twice, we can't wait to talk about it, Avengers Endgame. Yes. It should go without saying that there are going to be spoilers in this episode, we're going to talk extensively about what happens, so if you haven't seen Endgame yet, what are you doing still listening to this episode? Go to the cinema right now and watch it, because we're going to jump right into the plot. Yes, it's really strange that it's like been, what, 22 films now and like 11 years. The one thing I would say immediately up front is I'm so glad that I came out of the film. I didn't feel let down by it in any way. And I felt that it was just one of those movies which I'll remember not only seeing, but also the experience of seeing as well for for a long, long time. Um, So I think what we're going to do is go through, you know, some aspects of the film uh, in terms of the plot that we really, really liked but also delve a little bit more into sort of the legacy of some of these characters in the context of how their arcs have continued over these films, where Endgame leaves some of these characters and what some of the potential characters might be up to, I think, in the future as well. Yeah, so we're going to jump straight in to run at breakneck speed through the plot. We're not going to talk in detail about every scene, just talk about some of the things that we thought were really cool. And some of our favourite bits in the film, as well as some of the bits that are particularly relevant for those character arcs and uh, whether or not we felt it was a satisfying way for some characters to go out. Yeah, so we went to see it on uh, the opening day, April 25th, I think it was here. And it was a strange and surreal experience to actually be in the cinema knowing that we were about to watch Endgame, given that I remember thinking this time last year that it was going to be a a year until we'd see the sequel to Infinity War, and that sort of left you thinking, what's going to happen next? You had no idea. And actually, for such a major franchise, I'm still so surprised that despite the trailers and things like that, they didn't really give much away. There was very little in the way of spoilers or material that, that could leak into your brain before going to see it. So the only thing that I was slightly apprehensive about when we were sitting in cinema as you know as the trailers were running through for upcoming films was a feeling of not really not knowing what was going to happen but actually being slightly concerned that you know after all the build-up and all the hype and the internal feeling of thinking oh what's going to happen I really want to know you know how this is going to finish and it was that sense of hoping that they didn't screw it up Mm. and thinking you know that when we were watching it as good as it would be until the very last moments I think I was always thinking perhaps a little bit too much about the film itself and how much it meant and thinking, oh, please don't screw it up, please don't screw it up. And I was so happy that those kind of concerns are allayed very early on and you get completely thrown into it. But that's a major achievement as well, to to not screw up a story that is as big as this and probably means as much to as many people who have been you know, following the MCU for such a long time. It feels like you've been watching a 22-person relay at the Mm. Olympics, and this is the final baton pass, and they're in the lead, and you just think, just don't drop it now, don't drop it now, don't drop it now, because it it would be, it would mess up everything, it would mess up the legacy of everything. Mm. Now, we went on a Thursday lunchtime to see it, it was uh, one of the earliest showings that we could get. It wasn't completely full, because it was a normal work day. But there were a decent number of people in cinema, even for that screening. And the only other times recently that we've been to those, you know, weekday, opening day, early screenings have been for 
The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Mm. And I'm certain that there were more people at that Thursday afternoon screening for Endgame than there were for either of those two Star Wars films. Which is very telling, because I think this is going to break every record. I think this may even break Avatar's record (laughs) in the end. Um, And what's what's the record? Is it Skyfall? Mm. Is it going to break Skyfall? If it's still Skyfall, it's going to break it. Um, we went to see it again on the Saturday, sort of late afternoon, early evening, at a different cinema in town, and it was full house, um, really vibrant atmosphere. There were there were clearly a mix of people who hadn't seen it yet were coming to see it for the second time, like us, and it was a much livelier event. I think you were sitting next to someone who cried through most of the film. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like it was one of those films where actually going to see it a second time. When you're not watching it with the adrenaline of knowing you're seeing Endgame for the first time, it is nice to kind of watch it again, just to take it all in and and actually enjoy the experience of seeing it as a film as well with a with a packed audience, like you say. It's it's so strange. I mean, it's been a it's been a very long time since I've been in a cinema watching a film with that number of people, where you know it's not a comedy film, but Lots of people laugh at the jokes and like that. Mm. You know, it's not like a straight drama, but there are moments when clearly people are gasping. You know, it's fair to say it's a very emotional film to watch. It's hard to capture the reasons why on just one viewing, because I think you kind of invest yourself in it so much. You know, I felt a lot more the second time, I think, than the first. Yeah, me too. There are moments which are really powerful moments that you're seeing as part of this universe. I think it just goes to show how you feel so invested in this world that everything really counts. And I think it has all the highs and lows of the events that you're seeing on screen. You kind of stop watching it as a movie and it really is like an experience. It it captures, I think, that kind of fun blockbuster thing that used to happen many years ago when people used to make really good blockbusters. Yeah. You know, the kinds of films which unashamedly are there for spectacle, but they do have a lot of heart in them. You know, there are terrific performances throughout the film. It has these moments where I think you just feel like you are in this universe. And I know it's three hours long, but it doesn't feel like that at all. You know, and it's crazy to watch it when in the first one, I remember hearing people starting to sort of sniffle a little bit. So about half an hour before the end, you knew people were starting to cry mm. sort of about, about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. I don't know. I wasn't looking at my watch. But the second time, it was so noticeable that everyone is getting caught up in this movie. And I think rightfully so. It has moments of, of real triumph and real sadness and real loss. And you know that it's a long time. It's a long series of films so far it's a long period of time and you know that you're seeing the conclusion of a lot of very important character arcs at the same time you're also seeing the birth almost of the next generation of who will likely to be the avengers Mm. and there are enough massive shocks in it i think that you are just left with your jaw just dropping the whole you know the whole film and it just makes you feel like you're really part of a very special film event, um, which I haven't felt in a long time going to the cinema. And I think, you know, you have to wonder, I mean, it's 22 films and how they've managed to keep that up over just 11 years when other franchises just limp forward for a couple or, you know, nowadays, I mean, you know, I know that this has birthed the whole idea of cinematic universes and, and things like that and how many of those have, 
you know, failed. They'd stopped off for a couple of movies. They're being reevaluated. I think it really shows how, you know, how you can build a universe and how much effort it takes, how you need the right people behind the scenes, in front of the cameras, everywhere. You know, it's as much to do with putting that original cast in the first film mm. and developing that over time as it is to the introduction of the characters in the most recent films. There's so much payoff in this movie that means that, yes, if you haven't seen a Marvel movie before, you are going to be completely lost. But I don't think anyone really cares. I think you're going into this film knowing that you want to see the conclusion of Infinity War and you want to see the conclusion of the first decade of the MCU. And I think it it pays off in spades. Yeah. One of my guilty pleasures is uh, watching those videos on YouTube where somebody records the audience reaction to things and then and then you hear the audio mm. over a film because in Britain we're quite reserved mm. people don't tend to yell too much during films um, but obviously you get a lot from around the world where people are really cheering and mm. screaming and getting into it like it's a wrestling match or mm. something and I, and I find those really fun to watch but I did love on the second viewing in this that moment when Captain America catches the mm. hammer there was a guy in the audience who just went Yes! <laughs> I could hear him from a few rows over. <laughs> and that does not happen very often in Britain. People tend to be quite quiet. But, yeah. he, you know, even here, people were getting into it so much that they couldn't help themselves shouting when something th- like that happened. Yeah, and I think, especially with moments like that, they're great moments in the context of the film, but also things which are gifts for, I think, the people who have been watching these films for a long time. Mm. There are so many moments that pay off earlier little plot points in previous MCU films and things like that. When was Age of Ultron? That was, what, five years ago or something? Must be. Was it twenty? Was it 2015? Yeah, around something that time. Something like that, yeah. So it's taken that long to have the payoff of Captain America being able to wield the hammer. Yeah, when he makes it move just a teeny yeah. bit and Thor freaks out about it. Yeah, and it's, you know, so it's, it is really, I think, for the fans. It's not really a film that, you know, like I said, you can go into without watching certainly Infinity War or other um, MCU movies but I think it turns Infinity War and Endgame into this wonderful sort of six hour movie mm. and I think if you actually were to watch it all together in like a double bill and I know that you know there were screenings where they started the film about 9pm on the Wednesday so that at midnight Endgame would start to be Infinity War and an Endgame double bill if you watch it all together I think it's a beautifully paced six hours of putting comic book entertainment on screen unashamedly i mean there's you know there's no there's no sense of them trying to make it different to the others in any way it's not changing the style of the mcu movies it's basically this this two-part event that caps off the first 10 years and i think it's very much built on the style that the russo brothers had that they brought in to the mcu with winter soldier because mm. there are lots and lots of links to their own mythology from the Captain America movies that they did. You know, there was a shift in tone there when you suddenly were moving to movies outside of the Avengers ones, where the solo movies, as they as they were, I suppose, started to encapsulate more plot threads mm. and more characters. And I think how they've managed to put six hours of film together, which has this number of characters and remains really coherent, really fun to watch, and it has moments which are, you know, funny, sad, tragic, exciting, all these different things. I think it's just incredible. So shall we 
dive in right at the beginning. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the plot very quickly, but we'll probably jump in with things we think about it. So you may find it a bit too in-depth because you've already watched it, maybe more than once. <laughs> um, but we're going to put that up front and then discuss things, and then we'll move on to um, other aspects of our discussion later on. So I've divided this up into three acts, and I've called Act 1, Sad Avengers Are Sad. (laughs) So we open with uh, Barton, who is under post-Civil War house arrest with his little ankle monitor on, just like Scott Lang was. He's with his family when Thanos snaps his fingers, and as most of us had probably guessed was going to happen... His wife and kids all turn to dust, and he's got no clue what's going on. Yeah, I think even just to start with Hawkeye, I mean, he was a notable omission from Infinity War. You knew he was going to be in this because of the trailer, where he turns up as as that sort of Ronin-style character. But, I mean, it reminds you, in the first couple of minutes, how significant the snap was. Mm. It dives into a very small moment. It brings you back to... Not the events on Titan or in Wakanda where you saw the actual fight taking place between the Avengers and Thanos. But this is the first time you really see what it was like out in the real world. And you see somebody who is witnessing the snap happen without any comprehension of what's happening just happen in front of him and his family just disappearing. And I think that was a I think at that moment, everyone knew that we were in for something which was going to begin in a very dark place, but actually rightfully so. So then fast forward three weeks and Tony and Nebula have left Titan on board the Guardian ship. It's badly damaged and they're now adrift in deep space. No hope of rescue, running low on life support and basically facing certain death. So Tony records his farewell message to Pepper in the hope that she has survived the snap. But just when it seems all hope is lost, which I don't think anyone believed it really (laughs) was because they're not going to kill Tony like that. Who should emerge from the depths of space but Captain Marvel, who finds the ship and glides it back to Earth again for him. It's testament to how good the Captain Marvel movie was that the minute she shows up, everyone in the audience got excited. Mm. So they've, they've already, you know, so it's already, I think, it's clear that Captain Marvel is part of the, you know, the Avengers family. So it didn't feel very weird and actually. It's strange that, you know, within a few minutes, you're already experiencing the, you know, the concern over what's going to happen, knowing it's going to be resolved. But then the moment of knowing that Captain Marvel is going to show up and know that even in the in the darkness of all the things that are happening, there there will be things that you don't expect that might sort of drag them out of it. Yeah. So back on Earth, Tony and Steve have a very bitter confrontation. <laughs> and this is the first time they've met since Civil War. Yeah, yeah. It's actually been a long time since those two characters have interacted. Where Tony basically blames everyone for not listening to him when he said the Earth needed protecting. He blames Doc Strange for giving away the stone. He blames Steve for not being there when he needed him. Because for all he knows, he and you know Doc Strange and Peter and the Guardians were off fighting the good fight. Mm. But he's got no clue what happened on Earth. And basically feels like the rest of the Avengers just abandoned him and mm. weren't there when they were needed. Yeah, I, th- I think that sets up this this theme of of this last film sort of bringing together everyone. And I think you're right. The fact that that goes back to Civil War is such a long period of time. And you realise that there are so many things that 
you feel might have happened quite recently, but actually in the chronology of these films, I mean, these are characters who haven't interacted for a long time. So it's interesting that they bring this back for the last film. It wasn't in Infinity War. It's mm. Endgame where all of these things have to be aligned and everyone has to come back together. Yeah, so Tony tells him that he doesn't trust him anymore and then he collapses from his injuries <laughs> and uh, basically has to go to bed for a while <laughs> to recover. So the rest of the Avengers view the profiles of those who died. Carol sees Nick Fury on the wall and wants to immediately go and kill Thanos. And she plans to head off alone to track him down and confront him. And this shows how comfortable Carol now is in her own power since the in the years that have passed since Captain Marvel that she now feels, yeah, there's a problem. I'll go and fix it by myself. Uh, how bad can this guy be? Surely I can kick the crap out of him. <laughs> um, but... Nat convinces her to stay and work with them as a team. And Thor, who's been silently sulking this whole time, is suddenly up for a confrontation. That's also pretty the first point in the film. It's very early on where they start to build the storyline about Nat being sort of very aware of the Avengers needing to be a team mm. and that need to have sort of everyone working together, which obviously has more meaning to her uh, than others in the context of, of needing that sort of family environment that she doesn't have. So Nebula explains that Thanos would have gone to the Garden after his victory, and Rocket details a recent energy burst that must have emanated from the stones and which traces back to a certain planet. They decide to attack Thanos, steal the gauntlet, and use the stones to bring back those who disappeared. So using the Guardian ship, the team, without Tony, who is still on Earth, travel to the Garden and find a seriously injured Thanos living alone with an empty gauntlet. Thanos has used the stones a second time to destroy the stones themselves, preventing their further use and cementing what has been done forever. The team are devastated, and in anger, Thor beheads Thanos, saying that this time he went for the head. I did not see that coming. The one thing that was at the back of my mind going into this was clear there was going to be some kind of time travel nonsense involved mm. to sort this out. But it's a very brave move to open a movie sort of in the first sort of 15 minutes by having seemingly the main villain not only of these two films but somebody who's been at the background of the entire MCU thus far killing him at this point and taking out the infinity stones from the equation as well it's it's a film where the stakes are very high and i like the fact that they do ratchet everything up in this movie it's very much a lot of people giving it their all i think coming up with a plot which is worthy of being the finale of something i'm sure we'll say it later on as well but this is also tremendously skillful on behalf of the screenwriters as well christopher marcus and stephen mcfeely i think it was what they've done is crafted i think a very well paced six hours but they know what beats to put in the second half and how to actually have a moment of real panic in the audience when they see something this early on because also it completely wrong-footed me because I had no idea that anything like this was going to happen this early on. Yeah, because so much of the trailer footage turned out to be from these really early scenes. Mm. And I, I think what, what struck me about it was that Infinity War had been about so many of their plans failing. Mm. You know, that the plan on Titan to get the gauntlet off Thanos ultimately fails to the point where Quid is like, did we just lose? <laughs> he just can't comprehend it. And then the plan to defend the Mind Stone or destroy the Mind Stone also fails. 
and every backup plan that they had fails and Thanos gets everything. Mm. You know, Thor's plan to get uh, Stormbreaker and that's going to work, that fails. All their plans fail. So now they've recouped, they've come up with a new plan and it fails within mm. the first 10 minutes of the movie. And I think that's really brave mm. because it's basically heaping another ultimate final failure on top of them which leads into the subsequent five years in which they're thinking, well, that's it. That was genuinely the last chance. But it also, I think, highlights the importance of a character like Captain America and also, you know, the burgeoning role of of Captain Marvel as well, Mm. because they are both very optimistic heroes. They will actually suffer a lot of these defeats, but it won't make them stop trying. And I think you have that on one side and you have Tony Stark as the... Well, I suppose it's the slight pessimist in the whole thing. He's still a hero, but he but he has red lines that he will not cross. And I think the fact that this happens, that then refocuses the story on, to an extent, how Captain America is going to lead another attempt. You know, because I think very few characters would have the ability to keep trying in this context. And I feel that if Captain Marvel had been a more established character in the MCU... I think she would have been a lot more prominent and working on the same lines as, as Captain America in this movie. So jump to five years later, we're now in 2023. Mm. Uh, Steve is running a support group, helping people to move on with life after the devastation, which is ironic because he's exactly the kind of person who can't move on and never has moved on. He's still carrying Peggy's picture around with mm. him, like a talisman to the, the past that he never got to have. And indeed, when he goes to see Nat and he says to her, you know, I keep telling other people to move on, but you and me, we can't move on. You know, they, they, they can't stop thinking that they can somehow put things right rather than accepting things the way they are. So Nat is at Avengers HQ organising what seems to be a universe-wide effort to keep civilizations from crumbling. And we know that Rocket, Bruce, Okoye, Carol and Rhodes are all out in the field in various countries, planets, middle of space just trying to get things done. And and she has clearly cast herself as the role as the hub of this effort to try and rebuild things in order to make herself feel useful, I guess, and sort of at the heart of the Avengers family, even though half of them have disappeared. And it's nice that in this movie they are openly embracing the fact that the impact of the snap is universe-wide. So Carol, who obviously doesn't let an apocalyptic event to get in the way of going to the hairdressers, (laughs) because she's got another new hairdo, says that they may not hear from her for a while, as there are loads of planets out there that need her help, thus conveniently getting her out of the way for the time heist shenanigans. Meanwhile, Rhodes has been secretly looking for Barton at Nat's request, and we learn that Barton has been going on a murder spree, and that his recent victims were a room full of drug cartel killers. Mm. And he's left a trail of destruction in his wake everywhere he's gone. But Nat asks Rhodey to keep looking for him because she's not going to give up on him no matter what he's done. Which is essentially an echo of her own past. Mm. Because she used to be a killer before she found this family. And it was obviously Barton, her best friend, who helped pull her through it. And she feels that she can do the same for him no matter what he's done. And that's echoed in the conversation that Hulk has with Thor as well mm-hmm. when you know he's well a little bit later on he's it's that discussion where hulk sees that that thor needs help and he's happy to help him and he recognizes it in the context of the fact that 
he knows that there was a time when he was down and Thor helped him. Um, and there's a lot of this. There's lots of characters paying off the goodwill that others have shown. But it's also clear that it's hard to actually retain that camaraderie. It's almost like you know pointing out the fact that, you know, that being part of this team is hard work. It's not easy. So meanwhile, Scott Lang finally escapes from the quantum realm <laughs> after a rat runs over the control panel and accidentally activates his return. Now, I want to know, out of the 14,605,000 possible features <laughs> that Doctor Strange saw, how many of them failed because the rat didn't run across the panel <laughs> in the right way? That rat saved the world, mm. the universe, in fact, and uh, needs its own statue. Yeah, so I knew that Ant-Man was in the trailers. I knew he was going to feature in Endgame, but I'd kind of stopped trying to work out how he was going to return from the quantum realm after the events of Ant-Man and the Wasp. When it happened, I think it was actually quite clever that it was a slightly random, matter-of-fact kind of event, because I was thinking, well, how is this even going to work? in any way how are they going to get him back you know given that the pims and janet and everyone they were all dusted so it's clever that they have to use something as, as slightly silly as you know as the rat to do it but it's clever that they do it just to have it happen there's not like a high concept aspect of the plot here they just get things moving like that and he pops out in a storage facility uh with one security guard and we get our first community cameo of this particular Russo Brothers movie. Senior Chang. Yes. <laughs> Who, uh, after all this time, he's still a security guard. Yeah. And he still is behaving like a bit of a dick as well, <laughs> by the look of it. It was kind of weird because, again, there are so many links. I'm sure, we'll, you know, I will talk about it, but there are lots of community links in these. They're ones that you probably see only if you've watched Community, and they're clearly not always intentional. But the Russo Brothers were one of the major sort of directing teams who worked on that show. And in their movies, at least, they brought back Arbed and... The Dean. The Dean has shown up. Yeah, and in uh, in Homecoming, which wasn't one of theirs, Troy shows up. So Donald Glover shows up in that one. So it's nice that, you know, they managed to get Chang in this one. They managed to get Shirley a bit later on. You know, all these little cameos. I don't know why they've shown so much loyalty to the cast of Community. I, you know, I like it, but I don't understand why that's the thing they keep doing. Um, I kind of hope that now we'll eventually see sort of Jeff and Britta showing up, in, <laughs> you know, in some way. But I liked it because also, you know, the big thing about Community was its whole six seasons and a movie thing. Mm. And it never got its movie. But I kind of feel that the MCU does serve as that final concluding movie. You get to see everyone on screen again, which is nice. So after walking through a ghostly San Francisco, Scott discovers that five years have gone by, that Hope, Hank and Janet are all dead along with half the world and that he is listed among the disappeared on the memorial stones. And he reunites with Cassie, who is completely stunned when he shows up on her doorstep, because she spent the last five years thinking that he had disappeared along with everyone else. But for him, it's only been five hours. And this was one of the moments in the film that I found really emotional, was their reunion. Because he's clearly spent the last few hours panicking out of his mind. First, how is he going to get out of the quantum realm? And then what the hell has happened? And then is Cassie all right? What's happened to everybody to finally discover that she's alive? And it, and the relief of that. But then she spent the last five years believing her dad to be dead, only for him to show up alive. And the relief of that. So they're both experiencing the same thing, but through completely different paths. And I, I found that whole scene very tear-jerking. Mm. And the irony also of of having a seat, you know, so one thing that, that does come up is that 
because the story has moved on five years, it's kind of funny that somebody who's known for not aging, in, in the case of Paul Rudd, is the person <laughs> who essentially is trapped in the quantum realm for five years because, you know, he doesn't age because he's there. Yeah. But in reality, I mean... He doesn't age because he's got a portrait in the <laughs> <laughs> So Scott goes to Avengers HQ and explains to Nat and Steve that he was in the quantum realm for only five hours. And he hypothesises that time travel must be possible through the quantum realm, although most of his understanding of it is from watching Back to the Future. <laughs> Loads of pop culture references in this to time travel movies, specifically because they're going to say that time travel works very differently in this film to the way that it does in other films. So the three of them visit Tony, who is now living with Pepper and their daughter by lake, and Tony really isn't happy to see Steve again. He kind of nods high to Nat, but he just ignores the fact that Steve is even there. He just doesn't even want to speak to him. And Scott tries to explain his quantum realm time travel theory, but Tony dismisses the whole thing as impossible, says you'd never make it back again, it was a fluke that you made about the first time, and he's not going to risk his family by helping them at all. You know, he's, he's got lucky and he's not going to risk it again. As far as he's concerned, they've already failed. I mean, from his perspective, if you think back to his Age of Ultron vision, which we're going to get into later, he always felt that his failure was inevitable, mm. that he was never going to be strong enough to defeat Thanos. And so that being the way things turned out, he's accepted it in a way that Steve and Nat haven't. But later on, after seeing a photo of himself with Peter Parker, his scientific curiosity gets the better of him, and he devises a way to make time travel through the quantum realm possible by coming up with a load of jargony nonsense involving a Mobius strip. And I'm going to get into the Mobius strip when I come to my time travel theory later. But for the time being, he's just found a way to make it work, basically. And he talks to Pepper about whether or not he should do anything about this. Should he just bury it, never tell anybody that he found it? But she says, you're just not going to be able to rest if you do that. So meanwhile, because Tony isn't helping them, they've gone to speak to Bruce, who is now permanently half Banner, half Hulk, and is clearly still a celebrity in, in this world because everyone wants a picture with him. And he agrees to try and develop the technology but it's not really his field. And the first time he tries to make it work, he accidentally causes Scott to become young, then old, then young again, and completely messes everything up. So he's trying his best, but it's really not his area. So finally, Tony arrives with his solution and agrees to help, but only on the basis that they will bring the stones back to 2023 and use them in the present, and that they won't do anything to change the past five years because he doesn't want to endanger his family's existence. Yeah, that's the first really important I think, aspect of how they're going to deal with time travel in this movie, which I really liked, which was, yes, they're going to go back into the past, but it's not with the intention of rewriting what has already happened, which I think I was worried might be the ultimate solution. So I like the fact that the timeline, and we'll come on to this, is, is still following the trajectory of those who survived the snap. Yeah, so they need the team back together again. And Nat has tracked Barton to Tokyo, where he's busy taking out various <laughs> members of the Yakuza. <laughs> it's quite brutal, this section. Mm. Although, for a Disney 12A PG-13 movie, mm. they can't show you him stabbing someone in the chest, even though that's clearly what he's doing. Mm. Um, because they're human and not an alien. It's fine to stab aliens in the chest, apparently. Um 
but he has basically taken it upon himself to kill everyone that he feels deserved to have died but survived Thanos. He says, you know, half the, half the universe got Thanos, you get me. That basically he's pissed off that good people died when bad people survived because it was so random. Mm. So Nat convinces him to return, despite the fact that he he doesn't want to be given any hope because he's already given up on himself by pursuing this path. She tries to give him hope anyway and says, look, we need you, you have to come back. Yeah, so the last remaining team member to get back together is Thor. And Banner and Rocket travel to New Asgard, which is a little fishing community somewhere in Norway, to track him down to discover that he has basically given up on himself. Um, you know, Valkyrie says that he only ever comes out to get his latest delivery of beer. And when they find him in his house, he's completely let himself go. He just eats junk food drinks beer is clearly deeply depressed and is living with Korg and Mike who have both survived being snapped out of existence Um, but basically he's just completely in denial about everything and emotionally unequipped to deal with what's happened. Yeah I think Thor had such a big role to play in Infinity War you know he has that great moment in the in the final battle in Wakanda where he he turns up with Stormbreaker and he starts taking out all of Thanos' forces. And you think, okay, this is the guy who is here to sort Thanos out. His belief comes from feeling that he is you know, worthy of being that leader. He is the hero and he can do all these things. And he's obviously broken by the events at the end of Infinity War. He's clearly, you know, in that three-week period after the snap, he's clearly blaming himself. It's something that Rocket uh, comments on as well. But the fact that after several years, he's now... Yeah, I think, like you say, he's just completely given up. But actually, then you realise that his arc will not be the arc that you might expect from the Thor we've seen before, because Mm. that Thor has fundamentally changed. He's experienced failure, he's experienced defeat, and he's in the stage of not being able to handle it well. And I think it's one of those interesting moments, because... For a film which is ostensibly about, you know, superheroes and aren't they great and aren't they aren't they flawless and things like that. A lot of the heroes in this, well, in this two-part film, I suppose, have to overcome their own personal demons in order to sort of regain their self-worth, in order to sort of work out how they're supposed to move forward with their lives. You mm. know, so I think Thor has been directionless for five years. It's interesting that some of the arc that he's going to go on during the film is not about choosing a path that doesn't work for him. It's about finding his own identity as well. And I think I think it's an it's an important aspect to show the flaws in these characters as well, but to show that there are things that can be overcome for all of them. And I, there, there's this odd moment that you. You said, particularly when we watched it the second time that I sensed in the crowd, where when you first see Thor in 2023, there's a a slightly kind of spiteful visual gag of the fact that he's out of shape Mm. and he's put on loads of weight, which is the opposite of the Thor that you expect, Mm. basically. But the initial response to that, very quickly in that scene, turns to a tremendous amount of empathy 
where people think, oh God, he's just, he's just lost. Mm. Um, he's given up on himself. You know, it's, it's not just that, but he's, he doesn't cut his beard or comb his hair. He mm. doesn't do anything other than just sit around and try to ignore what has happened to the point where he freaks out when someone even says the name Thanos. He tries to justify it to himself by saying, well, look, you know, I, I, I'm not afraid of him. I killed him. Did anybody else here kill him? No, I killed him. But it was all too late. And he and he clearly still, after all this time, blames himself for that one mistake where if he'd gone for his head or even cut his arm off, mm. he could have saved everybody. And he didn't do it. And he, and he must have replayed over and over in his mind, why didn't I do it? Why didn't I do it? Why didn't I do it? Until in the end, she's had to run away from everything. And like you mentioned earlier, just as with Nat repaying her emotional debt to Barton in bringing him back, it's now the Hulk repaying his emotional debt to Thor in bringing him back from the really dark place that he's, that he's found himself in. So everybody's now reunited at Avengers HQ, and Bruce explains that time travel won't actually alter the events of the past because their new experiences in the past are now present, and the current present will now be their past, which can't be changed. <laughs> and everyone is confused, including the audience. But I think it's the cleverest way of actually dealing with time travel in a film like this, because you don't want to get hung up on these funny paradoxes that, that they could have done. What they're basically doing is saying, in order to make time travel possible purely as a mechanism to get the plot moving forward these are our rules and this is what we're going to stick to and they hold out actually i think pretty much until the end but i like the idea of just saying you're going to follow as an audience what these characters are going through in the chronology that they're experiencing they will travel back in time but that will essentially be still in a linear perspective the future for them and they can move back and forward etc but you're just following those people and that there is one sort of prime timeline i presume but the only risk of all this is that you can get reshaping of not the present in the prime timeline but ultimately the branching off of new realities that these characters will not experience so we're only following the characters in in this uh, reality in this timeline and clearly there will be events that spin off alternate realities with different futures that result from the characters we're watching going back into the past but we kind of don't need to worry about that because we're going to watch our avengers that we've been watching and what they're going to do in their futures yes <laughs> So Barton does a test run and successfully travels back in time to his home before the snap, but he just misses seeing his family. Mm. And at this point, I was like, he's so going to die in yeah, this film. Yeah. And it's going to be like, oh, he, he could have seen them one last time and never made it. I was, I mean, to be honest, I was certain that he was going to die in Age of Ultron. I've been expecting him to die for ages. <laughs> Maybe he cannot die. <laughs> and that's the end of Act 1. Moving on to Act 2, Time Heist. So the extended gang are together and the Time Heist is on. Steal the Infinity Stones from the past, bring them to 2023, and use them to re-snap everyone back into existence. And they map out when and where the stones have been, using their collective knowledge, as many of them have had direct encounters with the stones over the years. And I felt quite smug at this point, because in the run-up to Endgame, 
I thought it was going to be relevant that so many of them had had encounters with the stones yeah. before. So they split into teams, but they only have one shot at succeeding because there aren't enough pin particles left for a do-over, which adds a nice touch of jeopardy to it. And also, I think, I did not know that they would go back and do that thing of going back into their own movies. Yeah. I think that was really clever because at that point, you know that as a concluding part of a film, it's almost the equivalent of doing like a clip show as your final episode of a TV thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, the fact that we've seen this universe develop and, the, you know, I think you only have to have watched sporadically, you know, the movies, I think, to have a sense that lots of things have happened, but they, they kind of dip back into their own past and you, it's nice to see some of these events play out again and know that there was some care that was put into the plot over the last 10 years. I'm sure there's lots of retconning if you're really careful. You know, I haven't followed it you know, super closely, but I do like the fact that it ties back to the first Avengers movie mm. onwards. And throughout, there are things that obviously go to films like the first Avenger and Thor The Dark World and obviously a link to Iron Man 3. All these different films are tied together, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah, it's a heavy dose of nostalgia. It's a bit like a, an Abergold greatest hits trip <laughs> through the finest moments of the Avengers. And also a bit of a victory lap, really, yeah. saying, yeah, it is kind of cool that over the last decade we have created all of this. And now we're going to have a, a highlight reel um, with, with added jokes. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it is a swan song for the Avengers, mm. or at least this iteration of them. And you can imagine that, you know, I don't want to slate them too much but like in the dc movies you couldn't do this Mm. simply because they keep changing the cast all the time (laughs) you know so there's no consistency between them as a as a series of movies which is why i think you know in in the dc universe they're starting to clearly think about making sort of individual franchises which are part of the same universe just to maintain tonal differences that that you know, that isolate the characters, but are more suited to that. But you couldn't have, for example, a Batman movie a few years from now where Batman goes back in time because it'll be two different Batman and it'll be a complete <laughs> shambles and the tones will be different and it'll all be, you know, it just shows that a cohesive universe is very, very hard to create, but they have managed it with the MCU. Yeah, because the the two casting changes that they did make were done really early yeah. on. So they never have to go back to them. And thank God that Edward Norton is not in this. Oh, I, mean, I don't know how he would. I mean, <laughs> it's weird to look back over the recent MCU movies and think, what would Ed Norton have done playing the Hulk? <laughs> I mean, I mean, would he have done anything near the work that Mark Ruffalo did in in Ragnarok, for no. example? Um, even in this, even in this, he wouldn't have been able to carry it off because you know, it, it, like I think what I liked in this is with the new iteration of this of the Hulk in this movie, it has so much of Mark Ruffalo's Banner character in it. And it really, really works. But you just can't imagine it working with, with Edward Norton. No. Yeah. I I don't know what I would have done if Edward Norton had been in all these films. So I only watched The Incredible Hulk about a month ago yeah. for the first time. And the reason I never watched it before is because I can't stand him. He gives me the creeps. I don't know what it is, but there it is. Sorry if you're a big fan, but I just... I can't bear him, and I only watched it that one time because I felt I ought to before I went to see Endgame. Mm. Is that too harsh? No, not really. 
it's harsh. He got he got a lot of, he got a lot of mileage over the fact that he was very good in Primal Fear, <laughs> and everyone thought, "Oh, it's fantastic!" And he is good in Fight Club, hmm. but he's not the kind of actor who I warm to. Yeah, <laughs> and the difference with that kind of character actor and an actor like Mark Ruffalo in the Avengers is that you could imagine that some actors would go along with the universe they're in and some people would antagonise that universe. And I think <laughs> Edward Norton would antagonise the MCU by being in it. He just wouldn't fit in that world. Anyway, moving on. Team One is going to 2012 because they've figured out that there are three stones in New York at the same time. At the Battle of New York, you've got both the Tesseract and the Scepter representing the Space Stone and the Mind Stone that will both be in Stark Tower when Loki and the army attacks. And they hypothesise that Doctor Strange must be with the Time Stone over in the Sanctum across town. So Steve, Tony, Bruce and Scott travel there. Bruce, who has to semi-rampage his way through the city as the Hulk in order to not stick out, and you get that, that wonderful moment where he sees his former Hulk self smashing that alien to bits and then jumping on the car. And he's just like, cringe, did I used to behave like that? Um, he goes off to the Sanctum, but instead of Doctor Strange, he discovers that the Time Stone is held by the Ancient One. And I really liked her coming back in this. Yeah, I had no idea that was going to happen. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, they really are going to tie everything up. Yeah. yeah. And also, how bloody good is Tilda Swinton in everything? Yeah, yeah. She's no Edward Norton. <laughs> Give you that. She kicks his spirit out of Hulk's body. So we do get a few moments of Mark Ruffalo just looking like Mark Ruffalo. Mm. And informs him that he's five years too early to find Doctor Strange there. Which is a nice touch because she can see the future. So he pleads with her for the stone, but she tells him that removing the stone from her timeline would doom her reality into a disastrous offshoot of the timeline. Now... I think this is interesting because I think that their actions in going back in time and changing things is is effectively creating a, a, a paradox that resolves itself in a Mobius strip that then ends back in the place where it began, which I'll come to later because mm. it makes my head hurt thinking about it now. But that by specifically by taking away the stones... She explains that it's the stones that create the reality that everyone experiences and that it's taking the stones away rather than changing an event in the past that mm. creates an offshoot, which would be disastrous for her because presumably um, Mads Mikkelsen's character in Doctor Strange, who I cannot even remember his name, uh, presumably he wouldn't be stopped when he was trying to destroy mm. reality or, or whatever it was. But we know from Doctor Strange that she can't see the future beyond her own death. So she can't know what all of these 14 million features are going to be. She can't know that Doctor Strange gives the stone away. So she doesn't want to give the stone to Bruce. Bruce promises to return the stone to the exact moment so that the timeline doesn't split. But she doesn't trust that he's going to survive in order to be able to do this. But when Bruce tells her that Doctor Strange gave the stone away in the future, she's really stunned because Strange was supposed to be the very best of all the sorcerers supreme. So there's no way in the world he could ever have done such a thing. But if he did, he must have had a really good reason to do so. So she takes a leap of faith on that basis and gives Bruce the stone. Yeah, and I like the fact that at this point, you know what, you're probably 
I have no idea, what, 45 minutes into the movie or something. But they just kind of get things moving. Mm. You know, they you know they have this plan in place and they're already doing all these callbacks to other movies and just getting, you know, getting the thing together. Meaning that you know that there's a whole lot more to come. And meanwhile, in the immediate aftermath of Loki's defeat, so we get a different angle on that, I think I'll have that <laughs> drink now moment, in Stark Tower, we get this, this wonderful thing where you see... Just the the bureaucracy and squabbling that occurs after the fight has ended. Because the Scepter and the Tesseract are both there. So we see the Scepter being taken away by S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, but we now know that they're Hydra agents, Mm. because Winter Soldier hasn't happened yet. They take the Scepter, meanwhile Thor and Tony take the Tesseract and the captured Loki down in the lift, and and Hulk has to take the stairs. (laughs) Which he doesn't like. No, he really doesn't like. So Steve goes after the scepter, and uh, he intercepts it by calling the lift down and getting in. And there's that wonderful moment where you think they're going to recreate the lift fight from from Winter Soldier. And I, I can't blame the Russo brothers for thinking... You know what? This was our finest hour, so let's have a cheeky callback yeah, to it. Because yeah. I think that's that's one of everyone's favourite moments from any MCU film, right? Yeah, it's so memorable. And I think when you watch it again, it's that bit where you see Captain America in the lift and you know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and it's just a wonderful sequence. It's the fact that they do a callback, you know, so self-consciously that, that it's really teasing the audience that shows how playful they can be, I think. And not just them, the writers as well, in, in bringing back some of these moments just to add to that feeling that this is a summation of a, of a lot of work over a lot of films by a lot of people. Yeah. And the whole thing comes full circle because not only have the Russo brothers brought in cast members from Community into their movies, but in the final season of Community, in the final paintball, episode actually modern espionage they have a pastiche of the elevator scene from the winter soldier when Mm. the dean gets in the lift and takes all the people out who are trying to paintball him which is just this lovely nod from the show towards the fact that their you know two most prolific directors had Mm. just gone off and made this enormous blockbuster film yeah and so i mean going back a little bit earlier as well there's that bit where it's not it's not related but it reminds you of you know the bit where that well, it's in the trailer where they're all walking towards the time machine. Yeah. In that slow motion kind of walk where where all of the crew members are in their quantum suits or whatever. Yeah. That reminds me of that bit in the season two episode of Community where they have to, where they get trapped in that KFC space simulator. <laughs> and then Arbed makes them continually uh, do that slow motion walk, you know, <laughs> straight out of the right stuff. It just reminds me of bits like that. But there yeah. are lots of weird things that you can look at if you're a Community fan. Um, in these episodes. That episode, Basic Rocket Science, that was an Anthony Russo episode as well. <laughs> and there's another one, now I think about it, <laughs> um, which is, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one with Jack Black appearing in season one. Investigative journalism. That's the one. Where Jack Black plays that character called Buddy, who shows up and tries to infiltrate the group. Yeah. Um, in community, the uh, the study group. And I think they say something like, you know, how have we not noticed you around here before? And he's like, oh, I've been here the whole time. And then they show clips from previous episodes, sort of from the first half of the first season, where they've inserted clips of uh, of Jack Black as Buddy 
sort of reacting to things and you know being part of those events but always in the background and i like that because basically that's essentially what they do when they uh they uh, they do this time heist they go back to their previous films and insert themselves into them which is kind of cool Britta cheated but why <laughs> <laughs> and you also get that nod to that controversial secret empire storyline in the comics oh the hail hydra thing from from Captain America. Yeah, yeah, but everyone freaked out about how could he possibly say such a thing. And then it turned out to be about implanted memories and, and mind control yeah. and stuff. But this time he's basically going to take a shortcut to waltzing off with that scepter <laughs> without having to throw a punch. It, it's lovely. Unfortunately, he then runs into himself in true meme fashion, of, like the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. But 2012 Steve believes that 2023 Steve is Loki in disguise having escaped. Yeah. So they fight, which is glorious because who would win in a fight, Captain America or Captain America? Well, the only way 2023 Steve wins is by distracting 2012 Steve with knowledge that Bucky is still alive, mm. which is another great moment. So he gets the scepter and heads off. So that's two stones down, one to go. The Tesseract with the Space Stone is now in the lobby and another surprise appearance Robert Redford as Alexander Pierce yeah. turns up. Again, did not see that coming at all. No, I thought he'd retired from movies altogether. Yeah, yeah. Well, he has now and I think this is the last film performance that you know that is going to be released by him. But it's a wonderful moment, I think, just because you can now go back and think well, if you watch all these movies together, they really do tie up. Because it was kind of sad that he was in Winter Soldier, and that's his only film. Mm. But to have him turning up is not just good, I think, for the movie, but it establishes a timeline in which all of these characters were involved in shaping the events. Because you know who he works for, and to know why he's so keen to get uh, the Tesseract as well at that point. It's kind of really mm. interesting to see how his motivations were shaping events at you know at different times in the MCU as well. Yeah, because in Avengers Assemble... Or the Avengers, uh, whichever one you want to call it. I can't stop calling it Avengers Assemble. Um, we saw at the end, Thor takes the Tesseract and Loki back to Asgard. Yeah. But evidently, that only happened after a massive argument hmm. between them and S.H.I.E.L.D. and various government forces who wanted the Tesseract back. And you, and you can imagine what would have happened if they'd allowed S.H.I.E.L.D. to have the Tesseract back because they would have been giving it to Hydra, hmm. basically. But, but Thor takes it back instead, which is how it ends up in the vaults in the palace in Asgard. Mm. So while they're having this argument in the lobby about who gets to take Loki, who gets to take the Tesseract, Tony from 2023 is skulking around in disguise and Ant-Man has shrunk down and jumps into the mini arc reactor that 2012 Tony has and promptly gives him a mild heart attack so that he collapses and everybody freaks out and while they're distracted, he kicks the briefcase away. And just as 2023 Tony is about to waltz off with it, the Hulk has finally made it down the stairs and smashes his way back out, very unhappy having to take the stairs. Yeah, so you realise immediately that, like with some of these other plans, which the Avengers have put into play, not everything goes their way. Yeah. I also like the fact that Loki can see all this happening. Yeah. He sees the briefcase move. I think he sees Scott yeah. as well. And when the briefcase opens up and the Tesseract spills out and everyone is otherwise occupied, 
he's like, yoink, and probably <laughs> disappears, thus completely screwing up the plan. Yeah. Now, on a side note, does this mean that Loki is alive in 2023? Is there a version of him that disappeared off into space? I think if we assume that when the stones go back to their original points in the past, um, at the end of Endgame, I think the prime timeline is maintained. But it does make me wonder if the new Loki TV show is going to be set in a in one of these sort of splintered realities that mm. comes off, maybe when he does get away. Although at the same time, because he's getting away with one of the Infinity Stones, I honestly don't know if that's a different thing to having a timeline that splinters that that you know that doesn't involve one of these magical <laughs> stones as well that would probably cause something strange to happen. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a get out of jail free card for them yeah. to say, well, we can do whatever we want with Loki now because we can just say, oh, Tesseract, wibby wobbly, timey wimey, <laughs> and it's all fine. Okay, so Scott takes the scepter back to twenty twenty three. Meanwhile, Tony and Steve improvise a new plan. And you see them finally becoming close and becoming friends again, mm. you know, in the midst of all this craziness that's happening. They realise that both the Tesseract and Hank Pym will have been in the same place at the same time, and it's the secret shield Hydra bunker at the military installation where Captain America first trained in 1970, mm. because Hank Pym would have been working for S.H.I.E.L.D. at that point, because he hadn't yet left the organisation. With a nice bit of de-ageing of Michael Douglas. Yes. <laughs> so, they jump back. The reason they need Hank to be there is because they need more Pym particles to be able to make the journey back to 2023. So, Tony goes after the Tesseract and bumps into his father, Howard, while stealing it, and they have a nice heart-to-heart about parenthood before Howard is picked up by Jarvis. Now, I think that this is the only time that a character who had previously just appeared in a Marvel TV show appears in a movie. Yeah. And from the reaction in the cinema yesterday, I think there were quite a few people in the audience who hadn't seen Agent Carter because they were really surprised to find out that the chauffeur's name was Jarvis. Mm. Whereas I was like, hey, it's Jarvis, (laughs) James Darcy. So meanwhile, Steve distracts Hank and steals some more pimp articles. And while hiding from security, who have been alerted by Shirley from community, <laughs> he walks into Peggy's office and he glimpses her through the blinds. And I think this is such a crucial moment because at, at first glance, it appears to be just another kind of slightly heartbreaking encounter in the same way as Tony saying hello to his dad for the final time, Thor seeing his mum. This is him seeing Peggy one last time. Mm. But I think the crucial thing is that he finds that she still has his picture on her desk, yeah. even in 1970. So just as he always carried her picture around... She always she, has his. She always has his, even though we know that in this timeline she had a family, but she's clearly never actually got over him. Mm. So they've now got what they need, and they head back to 2023. Right, Team 2 is Rocket and Thor, who've gone to Asgard in 2013, where Jane Foster is recovering, having been infused with the ether aka the reality stone. Um, there's a, a wonderful comic scene where Thor tries to explain to everybody what the deal was with reality stone and Jane, which I assume is there because it's been so long since The Dark World and it's not a film that everyone has come back to watch loads of times. It's not a film people do go back and rewatch. watch <laughs> Yeah, so you get a nice primer about what that's all about. So the plan is to extract the ether from Jane before 
fair Christopher Eccleston dark elf dude shows up and attacks. It's been a long time since I saw that film. But Thor realises that his mother, Frigga, is going to die that day when they're there and completely panics. He can't go through with the plan. He has no self-belief whatsoever. He's just going to run away and find the wine cellar (laughs) by the sounds of things. But Rocket, who is normally the most cynical of everyone, is suddenly the most deadly serious of anyone, saying that you have to get your shit together because I lost my entire family and I have a chance to get them back and that's what I'm going to do. And it's, it's actually quite nice to see Rocket develop this serious side to him where there there was one thing in the world that he cared about, which was the family that he had found on board the ship and they've all gone and he has to do something. So he goes off to find Jane by himself. Meanwhile, Thor bumps into his mum who has some kind of supernatural knowledge. I think she said she's raised by witches. Yeah. <laughs> so she, she sees with more than eyes. And she knows that this Thor is from the future, that the future hasn't been kind to him. They have this wonderful heart-to-heart where he admits to basically having been a complete failure. And and she says what I think is the crucial thing in Endgame, where everyone fails at being the person they're supposed to be, the mark of a hero is succeeding and being the person that you are. Mm. And I think that's not just true for Thor, but it's true for everyone mm. in this film. So Rocket suddenly comes racing out. He's being pursued by half the Asgardian army and they head off back to 2023, but not before Thor gets his hammer back. And he's so happy and relieved, like a puppy who found a bone that it buried in the garden, that he's got his hammer back. Because it's, it's not just getting the thing itself back, but it tells him that after these five years of hating himself, he is still worthy of it. Yeah, it's it's an external validation that he's been seeking for, for some time that comes with the first from his mother and then from his hammer returning to him as well. And it's strange, he's kind of in a funk where he can't see clearly what situation he's in and... He is he is depressed and he has kind of let himself go. But I think it's the fact that there's that glimmer inside him. It's probably the same glimmer that convinces him to join the Avengers again. Mm. You know, he knows it, like inside you know, the light hasn't completely gone out. So he feels that he can achieve something again, but he needs proof. And I like the fact that they that they deliver it this way. Um, and again, it kind of mirrors. It's like I said earlier, it mirrors Tony seeing his dad and you've got you've got Thor seeing his mum. I think these are the moments when characters who seemingly are grown up and fully in control of their lives, it's interesting that the role of being a leader or a hero has been thrust upon them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are fully formed. And so they still need those around them, whether it's family or friends or their co-workers, essentially to to help push them forward, which I like as a as a general theme that runs throughout the film. So the third team, which is Nat, Barton, Nebula and Rhodes, travel to 2014 and they take the Guardian ship with them. Nebula and Rhodes get dropped off on Morag, while Nat and Barton fly off to Vormir. So on Morag, Quill arrives, does his uh, silly dancing from the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy, which is another you know, kind of moment of nostalgia. Because it was, the, the introduction of the Guardians was quite a pivotal moment in the MCU, 
with the injection of a very different style of film and, and mm. type of humour. So they knock Quill out and use his kit to get into the shrine and nab the power stone. But while Rhodes returns to 2023 with it, Nebula malfunctions and collapses. And at the same time, 2014 Nebula, who is busy fighting and not getting on with anybody, also collapses. And it turns out the two of them share a neural network. And through that, Thanos is able to view the 2023 Nebula's memories, including the memory of her witnessing his death, which he refers to as destiny fulfilled. So he realises in the future he wins. He does get the stones. He does wipe out half the world. He doesn't even seem to mind the fact that he dies because he died after doing everything that he wanted to do. I think it shows just as a villain, he's very fully formed. Mm. You know, he's he's on a hell-bent mission to carry out this one act. And actually, this only reaffirms his belief that it's the right thing to do because he knows that it is ultimately going to happen. And the fact that the event itself, the snap, is not going to be undone means that, to him, it's mission accomplished. He doesn't actually care what happens to him afterwards because he so, you know, single-mindedly believes that this idea of, you know, killing off 50% of all life forms in the universe is the right thing to do. That is driving him, and he's never going to see any differently to that. So, it, you know, I like the fact that his singular vision is there the whole time. Because it makes him a, a somewhat scarier villain. A more enhanced one, given that you don't really think there's much more you can do with a character like Thanos. Especially after you've killed him off in the first 15 minutes of the film. <laughs> albeit the 2018 version. And I like the fact that there's that moment where he he walks in again. It's the first time we've seen him probably in you know an hour or something in the movie. Mm. You realise that Thanos is throughout the reality that we're watching irrespective of time you know the guy who's driving all these bad things and that he remains you know the key villain so you know at that point yes he's back even though you saw him killed off a bit earlier on but you know that there's still going to be this confrontation and it, all that's going to happen is it's going to be this 2014 version of thanos going up against uh, the 2023 avengers yeah i like the fact that in 2018 when they go and find him he's hung up all of his armor yeah and one of my favourite things about Infinity War, actually, was as the movie progresses and he gets more and more stones, becomes more and more powerful, his outfit changes to shed more and more armour because he just doesn't need it anymore. Yeah. He's so powerful, he doesn't need it. But in this timeline, in 2014, when he first emerges, he's got all of his armour yeah, on because yeah. it's still that old Thanos who doesn't have any of the power of the stones yet. I thought that was a really lovely touch. So he surmises that the Avengers are travelling back in time to try and somehow undo what's been done. So they capture 2023 Nebula and interrogate her. And 2014 Nebula, who is still loyal to Thanos and desperate for his approval, switches places with her and travels back to Earth in her stead. Meanwhile, Barton and Nat are flying the Guardian ship to Vormir. This is just such a heartbreaking piece of dramatic irony because you have that moment where they're about to fly off and Rhodes tells them to watch out for one another look out for each other's sex and the audience knows the reality of where they're going and what it means but none of the characters do even Nebula who knows that Thanos and Gamora went there and only Thanos came back she doesn't know 
necessarily why yeah. it went that way or what that meant. Nobody does, but the audience do. And so it's awful watching them fly off, making jokes about Budapest, getting there as a team, and all the while you're thinking, oh, God, one of them's going to go, one of them's got to go, one of them's got to go. And I think you're still thinking it's going to be Hawkeye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely, completely. So they're greeted by the Red Skull, who explains the sacrifice required to be awarded the Soul Stone. And they obviously disagree about who it is who should die. Hawkeye thinks it should be him because he has done all these awful things over the last five years and he wants a chance to rescue his family. But Nat is like, well, I did loads of terrible things in the past as well, but everything that I've done over the past five years has all been about bringing us to a point where we can actually put things right. And it ultimately ends in a fight between the two of them. Mm. Because we saw them in civil war on opposite sides, but pulling punches against one another. But this time, they're properly kicking the crap out of each other in order to not have the other one die. Mm. I I thought that this was the most emotional part of the film because you get that you know the the, the turnaround where he takes her out because he's going to jump, then she takes him out because she's going to jump. She runs. He takes her, her out one last time because he's going to jump and you get the slow motion perspective thing of him going to the cliff and you think, this is it. This is the, the, the filmmaking build-up to the way you build up to someone mm. making that sacrifice. And then just when you think that what is going to happen is the thing that you expected, she jumps off the cliff after him and saves him and forces him to let her fall. And you get that shot of her lying at the bottom of the cliff mirroring the image that we had of Gamora in the previous one. And you know that it's it's a done deal as yeah. well. Which I think is is strange because, you know, it's midpoint almost of the film, I suppose, and you realise that out of nowhere they've killed off the Black Widow. Yeah. And the resonance of her actions, the implications of it for the other Avengers and for Hawkeye in particular, I think are really profound. And I think they really drive the motivations of a lot of characters because then it becomes, you know, initially it's a plot about bringing back the 50%. But then the people who are actually carrying out this mission, the Avengers, put equal weight of that 50% to their teammate as well, because that's how integral she was, mm. I think. And I, you know, I just think it's, it's crazy because I never saw that coming. I thought there'll be the struggle... You can see it taking place and you think that there might be some... Well, I think when I was first watching it, I thought it would end up with it being the case that the reverse would happen. You know, there'd be an accident that meant that they might try and pretend that it was going to be Black Widow, but then ultimately they would kill off Hawkeye. But then the weird thing is, why would you bring back Hawkeye for just the first Hmm. third of the second movie? And you start to realise that actually his arc then becomes a whole lot more interesting because you know through Rhodey's description and a, you know, in a bit of the film what he's been up to. And suddenly you've got a character who is seemingly performing some irredeemable acts. You know, that, you know he's, lost, he's lost his kind of moral compass as he's decided to exact revenge on everyone who he believes should not have survived the snap. And yet, if the resolution is ultimately going to be the return of his family, how does he return to that life, knowing what he's done in the last five years, 
and also knowing that the price that was paid was that of his closest friend, uh, Natasha. So I think it's it's crazy, but there's a huge amount of very seemingly mythic storytelling mm. in this movie. It, it, it kind of transcends the standard blockbuster arc a little bit because it really starts playing with the motivations of characters and their impact on multiple other characters and how they're all changed by these events. Mm. It's not just about a film in which things get reset. It's about how the cost of resetting things is a whole new set of challenges that will clearly, I think, play out in phase four of, uh, of the MCU. And that whole deal with the soul stone where you have to lose that which you love and the exchange is a soul for a soul, it's shown here that it's equally about friendship just as much as it might be about romantic love or familial bonds. So just as it worked for Thanos to sacrifice Gamora, who is his adopted daughter, Barton loses his best friend and gets a stone. So that that love is equally about the love of friendship as much as any other kind of love. I like that uh, Clint and Nat were the ones sent into what ultimately proved to be the deadliest place because originally when they land on Vormir it seems like it's possibly the safest place to go in that mission. Yeah, they wouldn't have been prepared for any enemies to be there because at that point no one was on Vormir looking for it. Yeah, of course then you find out that as Nebula says, Thanos is there from 2014 and it all kicks off. So they basically sent them into an impossible situation without realising it. And just thinking back to all the bits in Vormir, it just reminds me how good the soundtrack is, not just in these sequences, but actually throughout the film. Because I think we'll now kind of always know the Avengers theme, like forever, which is really cool. But I think the music throughout this is really, really fantastic. It's one of the first films in a long time where I watched it and thought, you know what, I'd love to hear the soundtrack for that. Mm. So... Barton wakes up in the water with the soul stone in his hand and you then see everybody zooming back through the quantum realm to 2023, landing back on that pad in the time travel machine. Everyone but her. And everyone else is happy. They've, they've got their stones, they've completed their mission, they've seen their families again, all this stuff. And there's you're like, Where, where's Nat? Where's Nat? And they, and they don't even need an answer because they can see from Hawkeye's reaction that she's gone. Mm. Watching it again, for well, watching it for the second time in the cinema, there was a huge change in the mood in the audience upon her death because you weren't expecting it. I, mean, I think everybody expected that not all of the Avengers were going to make it out of this film, but I don't think we were expecting it to be her and no one was expecting it to be at that moment. Mm. And it was just silence in the cinema, people were like, oh shit, this has really happened. It, it was comparable only really to in, in Infinity War when Thanos stabs Tony and you think Tony's going to mm-hmm. die. And then of course he doesn't, but in that moment, you, it, it was that kind of like <gasps> a gasp and then just silence as everyone took it in. Yeah, I think if that was also the end of the movie. Mm. So you think, oh, this is going to happen, but then you know it's not going to happen because it's the end of the movie. And there'll be some other bigger thing that takes place in this to kill off a main Avenger in the middle of the movie kind of shows that all bets are off and that anything could happen. And you're really then not sure at all 
how the events are going to play out. I mean, I think at this point, I was just thinking, I have no idea what's going to happen. So you just go along for the ride. And thank goodness they don't screw it up. Yeah. And it's also a real down at the end of this otherwise wacky time heist, revisiting your greatest hits trail that they've had throughout this second act, is that for one of these teams, it has gone horribly, horribly wrong Mm. and cannot be undone. And as they're all mourning for her afterwards, you know, Cap has that, you know, someone asked if she had family and Cap has that line saying, yeah, it was us. We were her family. Um, So we're the only ones left to mourn for her. And Hawkeye kind of assures them, you you can't undo this. You know, if you you want to argue about the cosmic implications, go and speak to the floating red guy (laughs) on Vormir if you want to. But she's not coming back. Yeah, and even Thor is starting to get his confidence back. Hmm. He believes once again that you can solve these problems. He's got that kind of slight cockiness that that Thor sometimes has of thinking... No, we can do this. We can, and and even he gets cut down yeah. by Hawkeye in this instance. So you really, yeah, you re- he's often he's often like, "Oh, you tiny human-brained Earth things don't yeah. understand all these cosmic things." But yeah, in reality, that there are things which are at play that even he doesn't understand. So you realize that everyone is dealing with huge events around them, and no one really has a clue how it's going to play out. So how it does play out is Act Three. <laughs> Royal Rumble, where they just keep on throwing new people into the fight over and over and over again until somebody wins. So, in 2023, we see Nebula, who is the 2014 Nebula in disguise, using the time machine to open a portal that will allow Thanos to transport his army to Earth from 2014. Meanwhile, the Avengers argue over who should try to use the new Infinity Gauntlet they've made with the stones. Thor wants to do it, he argues that he's the strongest, and he clearly desperately just wants to do something right. But they tell him, no, you're not in the right frame of mind to be the one who does this. And Bruce is adamant that it has to be him, because he can take the radiation that would otherwise kill a normal human being. So he puts the gauntlet on, succeeds at great expense in snapping his fingers, hopefully bringing the dusted back to life but is badly injured using the gauntlet and appears to lose the use of his right arm in the process. And the first sign that you get that life is returning is the sound of birds outside. Mm. And birdsong is a really beautiful recurring audio motif within the film. Um, I need to watch it again to pick up exactly how many times it happens. But there are... There are lots of other times as well where either birdsong or the absence of birdsong is indicative mm. of life and death and, and things that have occurred. And they don't you know, go to the extent of you know, showing everyone returning or anything like that. It's implied in that moment. It's a very powerful one as well. It's that and after everything that's happened that we were just discussing, the fact that Laura, Hawkeye's wife, then calls... Mm. Those are the two moments that I think, yeah, they they show that, yes, the snap has been reversed, but they do it in at both the you know the allegorical level of, of the bird song, but also the personal level, the cost of everything. When when Hawkeye, who like we say has you know, gone through all this stuff over the last few years, he's just lost Nat as well. You know, somebody who traded her life so he could essentially continue, and who also who was there to make sure that. 
by having the soul stone, everyone could you know come back. It's that sacrifice which is symbolized in the fact that Hawkeye's able to have you know a reunion with his wife, and you realize what it all means. You know how how even the you know a single person doing something it was a huge thing, but a single person doing something is part of the the larger machine of getting these events to be undone in some respects but there are still clearly consequences of it it's not like you know nat is back you know that will always be a shadow and the cost that was paid for undoing the snap as well so before they can all celebrate the win thanos who has now come through the time portal with his ship bombards the hq reducing the building to rubble and burying most of them inside thanos then emerges and tasks 2014 nebula with retrieving the stones for him while he sits and waits for the Avengers to come to him. And there's this wonderful line where Nebula says, oh, they didn't suspect anything. It's all worked really easily. And Thanos says, yeah, the arrogant never suspect, you know, what, what's what's coming their way. And you just think, yeah, mate, you're just describing yourself <laughs> in this exact moment. You don't know what's coming your way. So back on Thanos' ship, 20... 23 Nebula is telling 2014 Gamora that in the future they become friends and sisters and she knows that Gamora doesn't really want Thanos to succeed and she no longer has that bitterness towards her that she had when she was her 2014 self and she manages to convince Gamora to join her so that together they can go and stop Thanos and I think that's the crucial point for her is that it was always about their friendship and their sisterhood being stronger together than they are when they're apart. So meanwhile, Bruce, Rhodey and Rocket are trapped under the building as water is flooding in, and Scott, who is now tiny, desperately scrambles to get to them to save them. Meanwhile, Barton finds the gauntlet, but has to leg it from the alien army, which is now charging through. How is he able to carry that thing around? Yeah, that's very weird. There's something weird about Hawkeye. But he's able to hold the soul stone in his hands. And apparently you can't hold the infinity stones if you're like a, a human being. So he's able to do that. He's able to carry the, the gauntlet. I mean, he doesn't put it on, but he's able to carry it around. It is kind of a bit odd. I don't know what they're, what they're planning with Hawkeye. And I don't know if it's unintentional, but it is strange that they give his character so much significance. They give him prominent role in getting one of the stones which has the biggest implications for the Avengers as a team. And he's involved in getting the Infinity Gauntlet away from Thanos. Which is odd given that he wasn't in the previous movie. And he's never been elevated as, you know, one of the main Avengers, I suppose. Mm. So it's kind of interesting that they're building up his character quite a lot. you know, But it might just be because they want to give him more of an arc. I also like the fact that in this film they clearly show the passage of time starting to take its toll on the human characters. Because mm. Tony is visibly older and and not as strong as he used to be and also barton is is a lot older than he used to be mm. and after he has that chase through the tunnels where he's just firing off every arrow he can to stop the alien hordes from catching up with him he he gets to the top of that chute he looks down sees there's nobody else coming and just collapses on the floor completely exhausted and is like Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> because time is catching up with these characters, you know, and, and he's not superhuman. It, I, th- I thought that was a really lovely human moment. He's just knackered from everything that he's done. 
and is all too happy to pass the gauntlet onto Nebula, believing it to be good Nebula, not bad Nebula. Um, unfortunately, it is bad Nebula who uh, tells Thanos that she's got the gauntlet, she's going to bring it to him, but before she can kill Barton, in charges Gamora and good Nebula, who have now teamed up and confront her, and they try to get her to come over to their side, say, look, you don't have to do this. But this is the old Nebula who was so crushed by Thanos' treatment of her that she just says, look, he, he won't let me. He won't let me go. He won't let me change. I have to do this. And so future Nebula kills her own past self, which, as symbolism goes, is quite on the nose. <laughs> but she literally kills her own past self in order to kill off the possibility of her remaining loyal to Thanos and allowing him to achieve what he wants to achieve. So poor old Barton has to get his breath back, pick the gauntlet up again and charge off again to take it somewhere, anywhere safe, away from everything that's going on. Meanwhile, outside, you've got the epic confrontation between Thanos, Steve, Tony and Thor. That bit in the trailer where you see the three of them you see their feet from behind as they're mm. walking towards him, which is kind of an odd shot to put in, but then you realise that it's because they had to disguise what Thor looked like. <laughs> but at this point, he started to get his mojo back. He's got, he's got his hammer. He lightning strikes himself to braid his beard and put his cape back on, all this kind of thing, um, which is really nice. He, he's sort of getting back into the groove of enjoying the battle. And this is who he's always been. He's always been somebody who just wants to get into the battle. I think that's quite telling about his character. So Thanos says that he has learned from the actions that wiping out half of life doesn't work because those who are left will remember how things were before. So now his new plan is to extinguish the entire universe and start all over again when no one will remember what it was like before. But before he does that, he's going to enjoy destroying the Earth because he's sick and tired of what these annoying Earth things keep doing. Hmm. So they have an epic fight, but... Even 2014 Thanos without the Infinity Stones is still too strong for them. Tony gets knocked out and he almost kills Thor driving Stormbreaker through his chest exactly as Thor did to him before. Before the epic moment mm. as the hammer finally moves and you realise that Steve has got hold of it and is worthy of wielding it and he smacks Thanos away. And whereas in Age of Ultron Thor was very perturbed by the fact that he could even move it a millimetre and didn't let on at all. This Thor is actually like, hey, I knew it! <laughs> He's just delighted about it. That's sort of his growth as a character over that time. So Steve and Thanos fight, but Thanos breaks his shield and as all hope seemed lost, he gets to his feet one last time with a broken shield to stand against the entire massing army of Thanos, including all of the henchmen that we saw killed in Infinity War, all of the thousands upon thousands of bloodthirsty aliens who are showing up ready to decimate the Earth. And it, it's that glorious vista of just Captain America standing alone against this entire alien invasion. But then he hears Sam in his ear, and a magic portal appears behind him as King T'Challa, Okoye and Shuri emerge, followed by the entire army of Wakanda. Then more portals appear as all of the heroes, all those who survived the snap, all those who are newly resurrected, start to arrive for the fight, courtesy of 
Doctor Strange and Wong and what seems like a, a battalion of other sorcerers mm. who are helping them to open up all these portals. And so with the alien army on one side, you now have this entire army of heroes from all over the galaxy on the other side, ready for the final smackdown. With all this stuff set up, you then have the moment which has been teased for 10 years or so, Captain America finally getting to uh, shout his call to action of Avengers Assemble, <laughs> which meant that everyone in the cinema was like going crazy when this happened. Because I think then you realise that it's the first time you see the effect of the snap being undone. And then you realise that this is the real confrontation that the film has been leading up to. The fact that you've got, you know, this happening within a few minutes of Captain America wielding the hammer and showing he's worthy of doing so as well. There's all these moments which are playing into these mythical comic book moments that fans of the series will sort of be waiting for. And they're setting it all up, really building momentum for, you know, this final battle that's going to take place. Yeah. I also like the reversal of events where in, in the Battle of Wakanda in Infinity War, you have Thor arriving in the middle of battle, you know, leading the charge of the cavalry. Mm. Whereas this time you have Wakanda arriving <laughs> at the Avengers HQ. They're leading the charge of the cavalry. It was quite a nice sort of callback to the way that happened. Yeah, and the way that everything has been trashed at Avengers HQ as well. I mean, visually, it looks quite a lot like Titan at the end of Infinity mm. War, where Stark and the Guardians and, and uh, Spider-Man are all stuck fighting Thanos there before he comes to Wakanda. It's, you know, it's interesting that, that they have all these moments where they parallel scenes from Infinity War, but they kind of invert them. And you realise that there's an element of the tide turning in this movie where they're going to actually have a chance to have that even fight with Thanos. But it's interesting that the stakes are still the same in terms of it being about Thanos wanting to get his hands on the gauntlet and this time erase everyone. And when all the heroes charged through, there were some really lovely moments. It was only on the second viewing that I saw that Korg and Micah are in there. <laughs> They've turned up to fight. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the first time, I sometimes, you know, when you're surprised at what events in the film make you think, yes, awesome. And it was actually the moment when Hope zips out as the wasp mm. and looks around. And I was like, yes, because I realised that at that point, she was now the only character who hadn't been a part of this bigger team. You know, she, she, had, she had never teamed up with the Avengers. She had just been in you know, Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp. She hadn't had the adventures in Berlin and all that stuff. At this point, even Captain Marvel had turned up mm. in this universe. But for me, it felt like that was a moment where she was like, yeah, I'm here as well. I am a superhero. Um, this is awesome, basically. So I, I really liked that. So epic battle ensues. Ant-Man goes giant, rescuing uh, the Hulk, Rhodey and Rocket from the building, and they all join the fight. Um, meanwhile, Button has no idea what to do with the gauntlet. He's just running around <laughs> with the thing on the battlefield, going like, ah, Steve, what do I do? And they need to return the stones to the past. But the time machine's been blown up. So Scott points up that they do have another time machine in the back <laughs> of the van, which Valkyrie finds for them. Where did she get her Pegasus from? No idea. That did kind of bug me a little bit, because I thought all the Pegasuses <laughs> were all uh, gone. 
at this point, but she appears to have one that she kept behind in New Asgard. Yeah, but you, but you know who is good at finding uh, a Pegasus? is Jeff Winger. <laughs> that is true. That is true. It's another community <laughs> reference. Unintentional, though, maybe. <laughs> so as this huge battle is going on, uh, Scott and Hope zip off to the van to try and get the machine started. Loads of characters meet up again. Peter chats with Tony. He's really excited, like, oh, Mr. Saga, I believe it. I fell asleep and then I woke up and there's all the things. And, and Tony's just like, oh, thank God you're alive. Oh, and the hug as well, because we just watched Spider-Man Homecoming. And there's that bit where Tony's dropping Peter off after the Berlin expedition. And Tony goes to open the car and Peter thinks he's getting a hug. And Tony's like, no, no, I'm just opening the door. We're, we're not at hug territory yet. And they finally get a hug. But it's the first time also you realise that for the people who were snapped away, yeah. they haven't experienced a long passage of time. Yeah. So that's clearly going to be something that's going to play into uh, future events, I think, in the... In, in the MCU. Yeah. And Quill is amazed to find that Gamora's alive, yeah. but Gamora has no clue who he is um, and is not very happy when uh, he tries to say hello. And then she asks Nebula, is, is this really the guy that you were talking about? <laughs> is this really the guy that I ended up with in the future? She's clearly not certain about it at all. Scarlet Witch confronts Thanos and says, you, you took everything from me. Because the, the one person who hasn't come back at all is Vision. Mm. And Thanos responds that he doesn't even know who she is. <laughs> which is just brutal. But she unleashes the full force of her powers on him. And she's so powerful that he orders the ships to turn their guns and rain fire down on the battlefield, even upon their own troops, in order to try and hit her. So suddenly, all the heroes are being completely bombarded from above. The sorcerers are all trying to create shields to to save them. There's that lovely moment when Rocket jumps on the resurrected Groot to try and shield him, which is the only time you'll see their reunion. Mm. But it's that lovely, like, oh, I've got my family back. I'm not going to let anything happen to them. You, you think, how are they going to get out of this? When suddenly all of the guns turn to the sky and start firing mm. at something that you can't even see. And everyone is mystified. What the hell are they firing at? And something has come through the atmosphere. And this is one of my favourite moments where it's just like, boom, here's Carol! <laughs> and she just flies straight through the fucking ship. <laughs> it is bonkers when it happens. So I think it shows that as a character, she is way too powerful yeah. for previous events that have taken place in the yeah. MCU. But when she does appear, what I thought was really cool was it's like it's something which is built up by the fact that, you know, this whole army of Thanos is terrified of it. And I don't know if that's because it, on their radar it shows up or something or there's some history in which Captain Marvel has has dealt with Thanos before. You know, so that's so they're aware of who she is. But it is crazy. It's not like a it's not like a traditional fight. It's so one sided by having somebody who literally flies through a spaceship <laughs> and kind of takes it apart. And you realise how not only how powerful a hero she is, but when she goes away at the beginning of the film, it's interesting that her her reemergence is when she is really needed. Hmm. You know, and you don't really know what she's been up to when she's been sorting out problems on any of these other thousands of planets that she references, which are all obviously affected by the snap. But she's able to do things which are game changing. 
And I think it's it's impressive to have a character who can do that and to also successfully find a way to use them in this way without people wondering, you know, why he didn't just stick around and deal with all the other Thanos interactions that were taking place earlier on. Yeah. And also, she still has to fly through an awful lot of space to get from one place to another, right? And most of that is just flying through the (laughs) void of nothingness of outer space. That is the most boring commute in the world. (laughs) If I were her, I would get through a lot of podcasts while I was doing that. Anyway, so now you get this epic gauntlet relay across the battlefield from Barton to uh, Black Panther to Spider-Man to Captain Marvel... At which point, pretty much every female MCU character shows up for some reason to help Captain Marvel get the last bit of the journey done to the van where the time machine is. But Thanos destroys the machine before she can reach it and blows everything up. Thanos gets the gauntlet and before he can snap his fingers, Carol attacks him to keep him from closing his hand. And he's so shocked to discover that he can't just punch her away, that it does absolutely nothing, that he removes the power stone from the gauntlet to hold it in his other hand in order to use its full force to punch her away. Mm. And this is the moment that Doctor Strange has been waiting for. This moment when the gauntlet is incomplete, yeah. I think. And all the Infinity Stones are, are no longer together in, yeah. Yeah, in one encasing. And he signals to Tony that this is it, this is the one yeah. in 14 million. And as Thanos drops the Power Stone back in its place, Tony grabs at the gauntlet, but Thanos knocks him away. And he says... His line, you know, I I am inevitable, snaps his fingers and nothing happens. Yeah. Although I kind of sensed that was going to happen. You didn't know what, you know, I, you know, I didn't know why or, you know, how it was going to play out. But you knew that it was, you know, that they weren't just going to have another snap by Thanos. So how it was going to be done was always kind of, you know, it made me think what we did. And you knew it was going to be silent afterwards. Maybe some double take of wondering what happened. But then the fact that you realise that what's happened is... Tony has managed to get the stones and put it on his own his own suit glove as well. I think that's the moment when you realise that no one saw this coming, including Thanos. And it's that thing about the arrogance that you were talking about earlier. The fact that he was complacent, that's just been undone by having a character like Captain Marvel show up. You think back to Infinity War when it was three or four of them trying to hold Thanos' arms, his head and everything, and they were all trying to get the glove off. And all of a sudden, you've got a character like Captain Marvel who can take him on -on one-on-one. Yes, she gets punched away when Thanos is wielding the Power Stone on its own, but then the fact it then goes to Iron Man makes you realise that this is basically the continuation of the confrontation at the end of Infinity War. But obviously... It's not going to end the same way. Yeah. So he delivers, once again, the classic line, the line that started everything off. Mm. I am Iron Man. Snapped his own fingers. And Thanos' army slowly turns to dust across the landscape. As we suspected at the moment Mm. when he did that, the radiation from the glove kills him. I mean, it almost killed the Hulk. Mm. And he is 50% radiation. Um, And... He dies on the battlefield with Pepper, Peter and Rhodes with him. And this was also really emotional, particularly the bit that got me was when she realises that he's dying. And she she knows that the, the best possible thing she can tell him is that she and their daughter are going to be fine, that, that they will be all right and that he doesn't need to worry about them. It's, that absolutely killed me. 
I think there's even that shot of they're not they're not like immediately there, but it shows the look on Captain America and Thor's faces, and they realise that the cost of their actions has yes, it's brought everyone back, and they knew that there would be casualties in it, but you know to set up the whole plot with Tony Stark saying that there's one thing that I want at the end of this, one thing is that. I want to remain in this timeline, essentially, and I want to hold on to the things that I have gained in these five years and learn to treasure. He's clearly learned to start thinking about other people and to and to not be as selfish and to, you know, to have his family. He's settled down with Pepper. He has his daughter. It's all played out in that kind of trope that means that you know that ultimately it's not going to end well for him. Yes, yeah, so- at the very beginning of uh, Infinity War, well, after the attack on the Asgardians, you get that bit where Tony and Pepper are strolling through the park, talking about their wedding, um, you know, possibly starting a family, and it all gets very foreshadowy about the possibility that he's going to die. But then, of course, he doesn't in that film. It kind of subverts that expectation. And he ends up living through the events of Infinity War, including with the fake-out death where he gets stabbed by Thanos, and then does actually live and do all those things. They do seem to get married, settle down, have a kid. But the ultimate foreshadowing of his fate is that he does end up dying, but only after he's actually gone and done all those things. That's not necessarily what you expect from the beginning of Infinity War. There is something slightly inevitable about Stark dying, both in terms of you know mirroring what happens at the end of Infinity War, but also this is the natural end to his arc. I think the only ways that you could actually have Iron Man do something potentially interesting that would sustain, you know, a plot would probably be to do the, you know, the kind of devil in a bottle kind of plot lines where he was an alcoholic and, you know, or ones where he makes even more mistakes, (laughs) I suppose, that, you know, that cost the world even more. But in reality, the nice thing is they allow Iron Man to go out as a hero and to perform a selfless act. For somebody who has had a slight kind of selfishness about him a lot of the time, uh, often believing that, you know, his, you know, that he was the one who could bring safety to the world. He was the guy who had the ideas. You know, he, he always felt that he could see everything coming and he could, and he was so calculating that he could come up with the best solution. But even he knows at this point that there's that look between him and Doctor Strange before, mm. you know, before he, um, you know, is about to get the Infinity Stones, etc. Which is where he realises that he is kind of the key to everything here. And I think it's very, very hard to watch. Like you say, the fact that, that Pepper has shown up in the form of that rescue character as well. It's like everything has so moved on from him saying, I am Iron Man in, you know, back in 2008. Mm. It's, it's all so different. The whole world has changed. And he has been a part of driving that. And yet it's his sacrifice which is necessary to remove the threat. So although, you know, it was it was Hulk's snap that brought everyone back, the threat of Thanos is only really removed in this personal confrontation between Iron Man and Thanos, which is always, now you look at it, how it was always meant to end. You know, it was set up back in Infinity War when it was clear that they were eyeing each other up on Titan, knowing mm-hmm. that that was the... That was the ultimate fight that was going to happen. But you you couldn't have Thanos being dusted 
without Iron Man being a casualty of it as well. It's that bit where the three of them are there with him, where you've got Rhodey, Peter and Pepper, and they all respond so differently to the fact that he's clearly dying. Because Rhodey, being a former soldier, is clearly like, oh shit, yeah, this isn't good. He knows that there's nothing that can be done. Peter goes to pieces. He can't deal with it at all. I mean, this is basically his surrogate father figure who's dying. Um, and Pepper holds it together until he's actually gone. Because she's not going to let their last moments be her losing it. I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. So the coda I've called, where do we go from here? <laughs> Everyone shows up to Tony's funeral. Uh, they play a recording that he made for his family and they float that proof that Tony Stark has a heart memento out into the water. Another nice callback to uh, to Iron Man 1. Over in New Asgard, Thor finally accepts that he's not really cut out to be a leader in the uh, uh, administrative sense <laughs> and asks Valkyrie to become the new ruler of Asgard. She accepts. So she's got loads of changes that she wants to make. And Thor, with no real path to tread after the last thousand years, decides to fly off with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, much to Quill's resentment, because he he clearly wants to go searching for Gamora. He's got her picture on the screen. Mm. She's disappeared off somewhere, but all the rest of them are there. And he really doesn't like the fact that Thor is on the ship. because it, And it, it's quite funny in the way that in Infinity War, it was all about his insecurity about the way Thor looked but now he's still just as insecure because it isn't actually about the way Thor looks it's about his self-belief and the way he carries himself that he's still like oh god this guy is clearly going to take over my ship isn't he what am I going to do about it and that scene is so, is so great and Chris Hemsworth has turned into such a good comedy actor I think in that role it just it, it sets up Guardians 3 to go in a very unusual direction mm. that we would not have been expecting. Yeah, and I do wonder if again, I have no idea what with the James Gunn firing and all this business especially with the timing of when these things were made and how the plotting works. I do wonder if it was always planned that there would have to be an element of Guardians 3 which does involve the search for Gamora in some way mm. and the fact it's not the same Gamora um, as in Guardians too, yeah, you know, it's a really, it's a really strange thing. So I don't know if that was that was decided on, and they're like, okay, let's put this in Endgame, and then we'll deal with it, you know, downstream somewhere. But I like it. I, th I think it it makes it kind of changes that dynamic a lot because now there's a lot of people on a ship who have very interesting interactions with each other, um, and like you say, I think that the way that they flip the physical presence of of Thor from the first movie to the second movie is very telling here. And the fact it reveals, like you say, Quill's insecurities, you know, not just about how Thor looks, but, you know, it's that threat of who is the, you know, who's in charge, who is the leader? Am I, you know, am I still seen as the boss? Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, given that he must be aware that Thor has just given up being the king of Asgard, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he's not someone who's out for leadership of anything, but he's such a cheeky bastard that you can tell that that's going to be the main antagonism that that will probably drive Guardians Three, you know, for example. Yeah, so I keep thinking back to Community again because 
Jean Rousseau was the one who directed A Fistful of Paintballs, yeah. which is the first part of the second season ending doubleheader paintball episode, um, which if you've seen Community, that will make sense. But but in the episode, you've got uh, Jeff, who is the self-appointed leader of the study group and very much like Quill in his insecurities, um, suddenly being confronted with this guest character called the Black Rider, who's swaggered into the paintball game and is played by that guy who played Sawyer in Lost. Um, yeah, that guy. <laughs> um, and and Jeff is, is immediately completely intimidated by his presence to the point where he he keeps telling people that it's all right, I've got to look at that guy. Yeah, he's not actually that good looking. It's all fine. I'm still the leader around here. And there, there was such an echo of that in Infinity War with the way Quill reacted to Thor being on the ship in the first instance where they were calling him the pirate angel <laughs> and Drax said no you're a dude this is a man <laughs> um, but again it was the other community episode Beginner Pottery um, Anthony Russo directed that one mm. and it's the same thing where Jeff is immediately intimidated by the presence of someone who is a more natural leader than him mm. and freaks out and can't deal with it at all so the Guardians are going to go off and do who knows what next Meanwhile, Steve is tasked with taking the Infinity Stones and Thor's hammer back to the past to put them back in their rightful places so that it doesn't fracture the timeline. So he disappears off into the past, but he doesn't return to 2023. And I think that Bucky knows he's not coming back because yeah. he says, I'm going to miss you. Um, he knows that once he's gone, he's going to go off and, and live a life. But Bruce and Sam are alarmed when he doesn't reappear on the podium but then he does appear sitting on a bench as a very old man and he must be very very if he's gone back to the 40s mm. he's got to be what well over a hundred but i suppose if he's a super soldier he can look good for a hundred because it's now 2023 he's yeah he must be over a hundred <laughs> but he he basically says to sam i decided to go and get a life mm. he's got a wedding ring on we can tell what's probably happened at this point. And he hands the shield over to Sam, saying, this is yours now. This doesn't have to be a world without Captain America just because it's a world without me in it. And then we see in the past him finally dancing with Peggy. After, If you look at the MCU so far chronologically, you would begin with the first Avenger. So it ends with them not getting their dance. And then the entire... Infinity Saga ends with them getting their dance. So the end credits roll and the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game is ruined forever <laughs> by the sheer number of people in this film. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so given that it's the end of the road for quite a few characters... I thought it could be interesting to look at the whole character arc over the Infinity Saga, as they're calling it now, and whether they had a satisfying ending. Because I know the ending of some of the characters has already been quite controversial with some of the fans. So should we start with Black Widow? Because that was the most unexpected mm. ending, especially because they're apparently doing a movie. Which is clearly now going to be a prequel. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they decide to bring her back, but then that'd be weird because they have to bring back Gamora... And there'll be a, I think it, it undermines everything if there's a way to bring her back. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. Think you can't, 
you can't now bring her or Tony back or it would it would undermine the sacrifice of Endgame. Now the thing is, if it's a prequel, problem is I don't really want to see whatever happened in Budapest. Yeah. Um I think the whole Budapest thing should basically you know, remain a noodle incident um, and never be explained. You know, it just reminds me of uh, the other day when we watched Solo. Yeah. And to be honest, it's kind of now ruined the mythology a little bit by actually showing Han Solo doing the Kessel Run. (laughs) You didn't need to see it. Didn't need to see it. Some things are are cooler left to the imagination. So I thought this was the, the saddest end, probably the most unexpected one. But mainly because I I think we're just not used to female character story arcs ending this way. You get a lot of stories in which a female character gets killed by someone. I mean, but basically that's what happened to Gamora when Mm. Thanos throws her over their side. You get characters whose story resolves with happy domesticity, (laughs) which is actually what ends up happening to Steve, which Mm. is kind of interesting. Or you get characters whose story is centred around them being the one who is ultimately the hero and saves everyone. And you you don't see that so much, but we're starting to get more of it with Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman and, and all that kind of thing. But what you very rarely see is a female character's story resolving by being the one who jumps on the grenade mm. to save everybody else. Yeah, that selfless act. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, sacrificing themselves for the greater good. It's not an arc which you see very often. No, in fact, the only other time that I can really think of it in the same way and with the same impact is when Buffy jumps at the end of season five. Yeah. yeah. And for a very similar reason. Yeah. She's doing it just to save one other person. Either one of them can save the world by doing mm. it, but she does it to save the other person. And it's not a conflicted thing either. It's not a umming and ahhing over whether it's the right thing to do, should I do it? It's just a confidence in knowing that this is what needs to be done. And I think it's rare, you're right, that you have female characters who have that sense of agency to say, this is what needs to be done, and I'm going to do it for the greater good. It's just not something which you see very frequently without other caveats attached. So that was really good. Yeah, because I was so certain that Hawkeye was going to be the one to die that I was doing mental gymnastics thinking, how is this TV show going to work? Mm. Is it going to be during the five years? What are Mm. they going to do? I just, I didn't see this coming at all. But I think it makes sense for her character arc because it's ultimately always been more about her friendship with Barton, far more so than it has about the romance with Banner, which I never really bought into. Yeah, that was always very awkward. It was something that the other characters were trying to force on them. (laughs) But it wasn't naturally there, I think. And although, well, well, I think, actually, to be fair, I think it was one-sided. I think think Bruce was in love with Nat more than the other way around. Nat was always about the mission, and I think she would always, ultimately, you see it here, she valued, above all things, her friendship and camaraderie with Clint. That was her, I think, main relationship. And it was one of... It was that. It was one of friendship. It was the one of people who were there for each other. And, you know, this reference they always make to Budapest and the missions they've been on before, that was where her family was. It Mm. was with those who she fought alongside and worked alongside. So I think, yeah, it was always very odd when they when they did play up the the Bruce and that thing to me. 
but it's interesting that although he's affected by it, um, you know, when the Hulk kind of slumps on the time machine when he hears that Nat didn't come back, it's resonant if only because I'm not sure if all the characters understand why she died. They, you know, they weren't there on Vormir. Mm. The only person who knows what that sacrifice was actually about is Clint. Yeah. Um, and I think that that that's a that's a tremendous weight for him to carry. And I don't think he, I mean, certainly in the film, he doesn't talk about what happened. It's just a you know she didn't make it kind of thing. Yeah, and there's that really poignant moment at the end where Clint and Wanda mm. are standing by the water because. They both lost somebody who didn't come back. Mm. And he says, I, I wish there was a way I could tell her that we won. And Wanda says, yeah, I, th- I think I think they both know that mm. we won. And that was it, that, that she had complete belief that they were going to win. And that meant that his family was going to come back. And that meant that he was going to make it back mm. to his family. It, it, even if it was literally the last thing she ever did. So we watched... Age of Ultron again the other day and it's still not a great movie in its own right but I was surprised at how many dominoes they set up <laughs> for this film but the thing one of the things that really struck me was when Wanda gives them all their visions the others all see horrible visions of their future but she sees her past mm. because the thing she's actually most afraid of is herself and the things that she's done and the idea that it somehow makes her a terrible person and that she can't be a hero. And that's what she sees in Clint. Yeah. In the person he's become wandering around Japan, taking out Yakuza. Yeah. <laughs> and when they all have a go at lifting Mjolnir mm. and, and she doesn't want to do it, she says, that's not a question I need answered. Mm. It, it's, it's that fear that she has of herself where she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not a hero. But actually through seeing in Clint everything that she has gone through, she says, well, yeah, I am actually a hero because you're the person that I care about more than anything. You're my best mate and I'm going to make sure that you get home in one piece. And that's why that is so emotional. And that's why it's a satisfying end for her character, even if it's an incredibly sad ending because she effectively dies alone in the past billions of light years away from everybody else. Mm. She doesn't get a you know, a funeral where everyone turns up. She's just gone. You know, she's she's completely lost in time and space to them. But I can imagine that her absence is probably going to be felt, if it is in the present or the future, as it were, um, it's going to be felt in the Hawkeye TV show. Because his return to being a hero, even if he does pass the baton on to Kate Bishop or something, um, all the things which have been gifted to him now are a consequence of the sacrifice that Black Widow made. And he will know probably more personally than anyone else the importance of what she did, from a personal perspective, certainly. But it shouldn't also be forgotten that by doing what she did, it brought everyone back. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's weird. It has resonance throughout the whole universe. It's a single act that she performed. But I still think that Hawkeye will will carry the weight of it personally. And that's what's been very clever about this film. These are things happening across the universe, but it's it's all about the people. There's a lot of character development in these films, which I think is to be lauded, I think, just because it's 
it's difficult to to maintain that focus when you've got sort of you know big space battles and aliens and things like that. Yeah, and following up with that, it goes back to what we were saying earlier on about what happens on Vormir because a traditional arc would probably have a character like Hawkeye turning to you know the world of a completely traumatized killer as a result of seeing his family disappear as it were and he's become this ronin character and he's he's done things which cannot be undone even if they are to bad people so you kind of think that his arc is going to be one about him having to atone for that in some way so he's the one who's going to get killed you know that's a sacrifice he would make you couldn't undo what he had done but he could at least pay for the lives he has taken by losing his own life. That's a way that you can imagine him being the one to lose his life on Vormir to get the Soul Stone. But the fact they completely subvert that is pretty astounding because it should be a sense of redemption for Hawkeye because he's the one who should die and it should be the way that his arc ends. Essentially, if he died on another planet, given all the things he's done on Earth in those five years... I think it would be easier to take than um, it being Black Widow who goes. But that's the difficult decision that they've made. And it's really impressive that they uh, choose to do that. Essentially, though, by killing Nat instead, what you've got is you've got uh, Barton being redeemed in a way because now he is left with the burden of knowing that she was selfless enough to make that sacrifice that allows you know everyone to survive he gets to return he gets his family back all the things he he wanted all the things he was doing in those five years were because he didn't have those things and all of a sudden that's all given back to him so how does he deal with that in the future it almost makes his arc a lot more interesting going forward i think and i like the fact that ultimately it is about the fact that it's nat's belief in him which will put him in a very difficult position of having to atone for what he has done in the future but it makes it all the more poignant that she wants him to survive because she wants him to have his family back and have have the options and the choices that she didn't have in her own life so i think thor's arc is another one which subverts where you expect a traditional narrative to go because if you think of a standard sort of wayward prince narrative who's family get killed and kingdom falls into crisis it usually ends either with them dying to save everybody or with them finally growing up learning responsibility and taking the throne and becoming the leader that their people need but he doesn't do either of those things and although he's a thousand years old he is effectively the most childish avenger Mm. um so you know he's he's very the way that he responds to suddenly being free of responsibility is itself very juvenile. He just eats junk food and plays video mm. games. That's, that hit, that's his reaction. And his reaction to problem solving has always been to punch things. Mm. If you think of what happens at the opening to Infinity War, when half the people get killed, a responsible leader would think, right, uh, where are the rest of my people? Let's make sure that they get somewhere safe that we can, you know, establish somewhere, got to look after them, that that would be their reaction, right? To find out what's happened to the survivors. But his reaction is, point me in the direction of the biggest weapon in the universe so I can disembowel my enemy. <laughs> That's how he solves problems. He's, he's not cut out to be king. 
at all. Certainly not yet, anyway. Um, So for me, it makes sense for him, particularly in light of what Frigga tells him about, you will fail at becoming the person that you're supposed to be, but a hero, as Mark, is becoming who they are. And he says that to Valkyrie at the end. He says, you know, I'm going to become who I am, find out who I am. And that's why he goes. He's going to be useless sitting in New Asgard Mm. trying to run things. He already has been. He needs to be out there doing dumb stuff. And I think it makes perfect sense for him as a character to still be continuing and still be looking for the next adventure. It would it would be like death if he ended up sitting on a throne signing documents mm. and passing laws and trying to be responsible. He just can't do it. Mm. He's not he's not a natural leader in that sense. I think even when you think back to Ragnarok, which was sort of the moment when Thor changed a lot in how his characterization worked within the MCU. Mm. When he goes into the arena to fight the Hulk for the first time, he's not He's not unhappy about it, you know. You know, he wants to have a weapon and he wants to fight. That's his approach to doing things, like you say. And I find that it is it is strange. He, you're right. He is childish, but being forced to grow up forces him to make some very difficult decisions. But ultimately, growing up for him, it's not about doing the thing of becoming leader of Asgard. To him, it's about working out how he can be the best version of himself. I think the fact that he turns in this slightly well on one hand you could argue he becomes a kind of you know petulant teenager who's just throwing a tantrum because he lost on the other hand he's starting to grow up because that manifests itself as him becoming deeply traumatized and depressed and he becomes somebody who retreats into himself you know he he essentially you know likes to be in asgard at that point because he can just stay undercover now there's no war on or anything it's weird that he decides to shroud himself in the safety of knowing that there is no responsibility because he's worried about taking on any responsibility he doesn't know what to do and and to find a, you know it's interesting that you have a character like a god who is super powerful and you give them weapons as well and they can fight anyone, they can summon lightning, all kinds of things. But ultimately, it's it's not just about that. It's the fact that he needs direction. Um, and he's looking for that, and he's not, he's not sure of himself. And he's let himself get so lost in reliving his final battle with Thanos and thinking about the consequences of it, that he can't move on. And so you've got him not being able to move on following a scene in which... Captain America is telling everyone you have to move on. But that's the, it's almost the point of the Avengers. Up until this point in the MCU, they liked giving advice to everyone else. <laughs> At this point, they have to follow it themselves, mm. I think. And they have to face up to things. They have to face up to challenges. They have to do things they don't want to do. And it may change them. And it might take them out of their comfort zone of being this you know, perfect set of heroes. That's who they were, but they lost and they don't know what to do with it. And it's very rare that you get a situation where, you know, a franchise builds up for 10 years to create a sense of heroes. You know, like Thor, a guy who's a god who still has flaws and, and there are flaws that he doesn't understand until he's you know dealing with failure. And then he's forced to kind of work out what to do and sitting around with Korg and, you know, getting angry with Nude Master 66 or whatever it is or Nude Master, <laughs> yeah, whatever it was, um, you know. 
that's how his life has turned. You think, God, what's happened to him? But the fact that it's that conversation that Banner has with him that echoes so many conversations in the film. It's about showing people that there is always hope, but you can't just keep doing the same thing again and again and again. That's the stupid thing. It's to, it's to change how you do things. It's to approach it differently. And that if you can't do things alone, you have to do things together. And I think I think that's a very interesting way that they use that whole message, you know, to kind of build Thor's character up, even to the point where he takes second stage to Captain America towards the end. So speaking of Captain America, yeah, <laughs> um, he's another character who's definitely come full circle. There, there will be a Captain America, but it's not going to be Steve Rogers in the future. I think everyone could feel that it was coming in one way or another, and that if he wasn't going to die, they had to get rid of him. I think if they'd killed both him and Iron Man in the final battle, it would have been sort of a bit of disruptive interference. Mm. You know, they the, the impact of both of them wouldn't have been double the impact of one of them, if that makes sense. Mm. And he had all, all of these beats in the film, like I said, when he sees Peggy again, when he sees that she had his picture on her desk all this time, it all starts to point in that direction. Also, again, go back to Age of Ultron, the vision that he gets from Scarlet Witch is of the past, is of the dance hall that he never made it back to, and of Peggy saying to him, the war is over, we can go home now, imagine it. And then the hall is empty, and it's all gone, and he's lost everything. That was always the one thing that he could never get, but he could never move on, no matter how much he told other people to move on. But having him grow old, you've got the, you've got the symbolism of it, which is that the generation that fought World War II are now leaving us and hopefully handing over the baton to a new generation to say, please stop fascists. That would be great if you can try your best. That To me, that's the symbolism of that scene at the end where he passes over the shield to Sam and says, okay, you are Captain America now. Off you go. Despite the fact that Sam has no superpowers whatsoever, but he's someone who's going to do his best and that's why he's giving it to him. But for for Steve, his character arc had to end with him not being at war anymore. Um, Again, it's Age of Ultron where Ultron taunts him by saying, oh, you were kidding yourself that you could ever live without war. You know, this is who you are. And that's what he walks away from. By going back to the past and saying, actually, you know what? I'm just going to live a really quiet, happy life with me and Peggy and I'm not going to fight anymore. I know some people have had a lot of trouble with that that they think that's a really selfish thing to do. Why doesn't he stick around and fight and that's what he's supposed to be? But why shouldn't the guy get a break mm. after all this time? He gets to do the thing, the symbolic thing that he that millions of people didn't after World War II, which is to, to go home and live your life. And again, it's Age of Ultron where Tony is justifying the creation of Ultron saying that you know he's trying to stop wars from happening. He's trying to stop the next invasion from happening. And he says, isn't that why we're doing all of this? So that eventually we can all just go home. You know, that we're not just constantly looking for the next fight. And so I know some Captain America fans have been saying this, this is completely the wrong ending for his character, to walk away from the fight. But I feel that it's a very poetic ending and quite a symbolic ending 
And there is the question of how he's changed the past. But that gets into the whole time travel question, which is still <laughs> baking my noodle. And in that in that bit in Age of Ultron where Stark has his vision of the future, which we'll come on to I'm sure in a bit, in that isn't his shield broken as well. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens during the fight with Thanos. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if these things were that carefully plotted out, but it's incredible that they have these callbacks to things. And ultimately, you realise that a lot of the characters have gone through the ringer. So their fates can't go in that many directions. They either have to atone for what they've done, which will be probably Hawkeye's arc. They'll be dead. You know, you know they have to finally um, sacrifice themselves in some way, which is what Stark does. Then there are those like Captain America who... I mean, what do you do? Do you kill them off? Or do you essentially give them the option of, of retirement? Something that a superhero can't usually get. Mm. You know, it's a chance to go back, like you say, and and have the things which he has pined for in all these films. And again, I think it, it, it speaks to that idea that, you know, these powers were not inherently in him. They were given to him and that made him Captain America. And he rose to that and he became that hero. But at the same time, it was the simple things that he yearned for that he could never have. And then even when he mentions at the beginning, you know, he's been in the ice for 70 years. Mm-hmm. That's the harshest way for these things to be taken away from him. But the fact they've constantly played on his memories of Peggy as well in that time make it all the more poignant that he does he does deserve this. He does deserve the chance to go back. But like you say, it does mess with the timeline completely. <laughs> Yeah, because it's quite clever the way in the final battle they succeed in giving Captain America the big moment and Iron Man the big moment. They, you know, they they both have the you know an iconic scene, which for Cap it's wielding the hammer and giving it the Avengers assemble, mm. whereas for Iron Man it's the snap and the sacrifice. So they manage to weave both of those things in. In terms of how he changes the past, I don't see any reason why Peggy can't still go and co-found S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm. It does mean that he sits on his hands and doesn't do things like warn them that maybe Hydra is taking over or that Bucky is going to kill Tony's parents Mm. and things like that. But I have a theory about time travel and Mobius strips that I'm not going to get into right now because it's about characters. I think there's a way that you can explain that where he hasn't actually screwed things up. Hmm. He's just decided for once in his life to be a tiny bit selfish and go and live a life. And frankly, who can blame him? And what I was saying before about settling down into domesticity often being the narrative conclusion to some story arcs. I think people maybe feel like it's somehow out of kilter for that to be the narrative conclusion for Steve Rogers. But why shouldn't it be? Like, does the poor guy not get to do that? But also, again, it makes me think of the ending of Buffy, but this time the ending of season seven. You know when... Okay, Buffy spoilers, it's been around long enough. You and all of the other slayers around the world have woken up, and there are hundreds of them. Right, because there's the group that's with them now, but there's also loads of other slayers waking up everywhere. And Faith says to her, you know, you're not the one and only chosen one anymore. You just got to live like a regular person. And Dawn's saying, yeah, what what are we going to do now? And she just 
she just smiles because the world has opened up to the possibility that it doesn't all have to be on her shoulders all the time and and the possibility of having a life is there and the other criticism I've seen is that some people say well it's not fair on Peggy that she had this whole other life where she got married she had kids um she worked at Shield and all this stuff but ultimately it's clearly her decision as much as his that this is the relationship she wanted and given the chance it's the relationship she always would have chosen I mean women make those decisions all the time it's not unfair to say well you shouldn't have let her choose you if she would have ended up with someone else it's her choice that's what she wanted and you can tell that's what she wanted because she still had his picture on her desk even after all those decades had passed right Hulk I I feel like they've never really known what to do with Bruce as a character. In fact, they've, they've never tried to give him a second standalone film. The, the, it just didn't work. He works alongside other characters, mm. but it's it's always been really difficult to build a film just around him. I think it's tough because you can only play out the, the duality of Banner and the Hulk so much before it doesn't develop the character any further. What I think is interesting is they had this whole problem in Infinity War where after his defeat by Thanos at the beginning of the film, the Hulk could no longer emerge from Banner. And in a strange way, I'm actually glad they didn't go into it too much in this film. They basically jumped to the point five years afterwards where he's reconciled the presence of both Banner and the Hulk within himself. And by keeping him in that state for the whole film, with the exception of his interaction with the Ancient One, what is nice is that you don't have what was a big kind of punch-the-air moment in the earlier films where you wait for him to Hulk out. Mm. That doesn't happen. Because ultimately he is the Hulk throughout the film, so he has to do something different. And peak Hulk was probably in Ragnarok. <laughs> you know, that's where he started to show a lot more characterization while still being the Hulk and Banner at the same time. You know, it was just Banner in Infinity War and he was left in the background of things. Here, he does serve a purpose, but it doesn't make me want to see a standalone Hulk movie. But I'm kind of intrigued to know what his arc is going forward. Is he just now the the character who is the original member of the Avengers who has essentially found peace with himself in a very simple way? I mean, he, you know, that conflict was personal. It didn't really affect his ability to be an Avenger, whether he was Banner or the Hulk. Now he's sorted that out. He just is, and he's kind of at peace. And maybe there's some characters who who don't need the overblown dramatic ending. They just need to settle down. Right, Thanos. Because mm. I think we've said goodbye to him mm. once and for all. First of all, what a great villain, which Marvel hasn't always had yeah. in their films. Um, I mean, proper Darth Vader-level iconic villain, I think, at this point. And the film would have fallen down. It would have fallen down in Infinity War, but Infinity War worked brilliantly. And I think there was always that risk that Endgame would suffer if they couldn't work out how to make Thanos an interesting villain in the context of this film, rather than being just the evil bastard from the first one. You know, and I think I think they succeed very well. Especially his final confrontation and the things he's saying, they provide a motivation for the character which makes him all the more frightening and even more of a threat than the future version of himself. Yeah, so so my theory is that Infinity War was about Thanos becoming who he was 
and Endgame is about the Avengers becoming who they are. Mm. Because really, Infinity War is about Thanos' journey. And the version of him that exists, given that the timeline has to somehow fall back on itself in order for this still to have happened, always will exist. One, Mm. he did what he wanted to do. He retired to the garden. Didn't even seem to mind when he got his head cut off. Um, because he'd won and he always will win. That version of Thanos cannot be defeated. Mm. And there, there's a there's a, a narrative wall here where emotionally you want Tony to defeat that Thanos. Mm. The Thanos who tormented him, the Thanos who defeated him. But he can't because that Thanos is gone. That Thanos died winning. Mm. And that can't be undone. All he can do now is defeat old Thanos. So when... You know, when the Thanos who lived through Infinity War dies, it's not very satisfying because it's a hollow victory. And in fact, it gives Thor nothing to have done it mm. because it doesn't matter. It doesn't help anybody. And, and we feel like, oh, oh, that's it. He's just gone. But he won and he died having won. And that doesn't sit right in the way that a, a traditional heroic narrative goes. But the Thanos that we get in this hasn't had all those years of growth that previous Thanos did in getting the stones, um, you know, in killing Gabora to get the soul stone in particular, he must genuinely have loved her mm. or he wouldn't have got the stone and he must genuinely have been mourning for her, otherwise Mantis wouldn't have sensed it. Mm. So he'd been through all that and by going through all that, he didn't underestimate anybody. Mm. He completely knew who he was and was single-minded and succeeded. It's this old Thanos who hasn't had that growth, who didn't earn the stones. He tried to take a shortcut to them mm. and was too arrogant. And that's why he failed. And it it can never be as satisfying to watch old Thanos die as it would have been to watch Tony defeat new Thanos, mm. if that makes sense. But those things can never happen. And there's a slightly bittersweet element to it that way. There's this moment in uh, The Princess Bride <laughs> Um, you know when they think that uh, the grandson thinks that Wesley has been killed in the pit of despair and he gets really upset and he demands to know from his granddad who kills Humperdinck. In the end, someone's got to do it. Mm. And the, the granddad says, nobody kills him. He lives. And the grandson says, you mean he wins? <laughs> Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing mm. for? And I mean, you know how much I love The Princess Bride mm. and I think it's the greatest script ever written. And there's so much in there about the nature of storytelling. But it's that it's that incredibly simplistic structure that we're used to of a confrontation between good and evil ending with the bad guy having to die mm. so that the good guys can win to the point where a kid would associate the bad guy living with the bad guy winning. Mm. But in this, because of all the wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey Jeremy Barrymuness of it all, Thanos did win, mm. even if he lost after the fact and that can't be undone and so we never got what would have been an incredibly satisfying moment of Tony defeating the Thanos that he had confronted on Titan that can never happen and in fact that's why it makes sense that he didn't go to the garden with the others because that would have just messed everything up I think you know but maybe that desire for that kind of narrative conclusion is itself quite selfish because Thor could have killed Thanos in Wakanda if he had gone for the head. 
but he went for the chest so that he could get in his line. I told you you'd die for that. And it was it was that moment of, of kind of selfish revenge rather than just doing what needed to be done that made everything go wrong. And also on Titan, when Quill attacks Thanos because he realises that Gamora is dead. It was it was emotional and selfish and understandable, but it messed everything up. And maybe part of what Endgame is about is realising that it's not about them, it's not about the villain, it's about the heroes becoming better people, and that means accepting that you can't just want revenge. But I think it's, it is representative of how they've made these kind of decisions throughout the story. You know, they've structured it in such a way that they never take the obvious route with things. The characters go on unexpected journeys and they deal with the consequences of that. And that will always hang over it, the fact that, you know, it is slightly bittersweet that it was not the wrong Thanos, but not the one you wanted to see defeated. But they had that confrontation and that Thanos won. Mm. So, you know, it is what it is. And finally, I think we should end where it all began and ended with Iron Man. So could anyone really be shocked when he died? Or that the fact that he, the fact that he was going to die. I would have been more shocked if he'd survived, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think I think after the end of Infinity War, I think there's only one way that his character can go, which is to, like you just said, you know, have the fight again in some context, but actually he has to defeat Thanos, but the cost is his life. He doesn't get killed by Thanos, that's the key. Yeah. Um he gets killed performing an act which saves the world. I think that's the key, I think, here. It's a redemptive arc for the somewhat sort of cocky and arrogant Tony Stark. It's a moment when he kind of realises what it is to not just think about yourself. Yeah, and I think there's something that's built up throughout it all, because in Avengers Assemble, uh, the Avengers, uh, (laughs) at one point Cap accuses him of being too selfish Mm. to make sacrifices and then he flies the missile through the wormhole and almost dies in the process and this is that playing out on a grander scale because when he meets his father and Howard says oh it would be nice to have a daughter because then she'd be less likely to turn out like me somebody for whom the greater good rarely takes precedence Mm. over my own self-interest and that moment you can see it's like it lights a bulb in him yeah, yeah yeah He's gonna he's gonna do something. He is gonna think about the greater good. You know, it, it's this this grand sort of chess match that's been playing out mm. between him and Thanos over all of it. The fact that in Ultron, his vision is of the future, where he is the sole survivor on a distant planet, having lost a battle, all of his friends are dead, and the alien army is heading to Earth, and there's nothing that he can do, and that that is pretty much exactly what comes about. Um, that the people who who were there who died in front of him weren't the people that he expected but that's the future he'd always feared and that is what he lives through Mm. and in fact in Ultron when he tells Fury about it and he says you know seeing my friend dead you think that would be the worst thing and Fury says no the worst thing is that you weren't dead and that is what happens to him and the other bit that blew my mind watching Ultron again is when He's he's having an argument and he he's he's explaining why he fe- felt that Ultron was necessary, and he said, you know, we can go and take down arms dealers every day, but there's forces up there that are coming 
and he says up there that's the end game and i was like bloody hell they can't really have they can't have known that they can't have known that can they <laughs> that that was what they were going to call it but maybe they did um all these years later that was the end game but also the synchronicity of it beginning with him in the first movie that was made which i don't think anyone thought was going to be the massive success that it was mm. and he had been this unusable star that nobody wanted to hire because of everything that he had gone through mm. so so many stars had to align you know 14 million to one chance that, that film would have worked out but the, the reuse of that final line from that film where he says yeah i am iron man which signaled to me that signaled how the marvel films were going to turn out to be very different to other superhero films that we had had was that the same year that the dark knight came out yeah i think so 2008 yeah 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 and it always just makes it makes me think of community again. There's that conversation between Troy and Albed where where Albed says, Would you tell me if you were Superman? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Troy says, I tell everyone. I never understood why he cared who knew. <laughs> it's and and that's the joy that that first Iron Man brought, where he's like, you know, I'm a I'm a genius billionaire superhero. I don't care who knows who I am. Whereas you've got Bruce Wayne skulking around going, no one must know my secret identity. <laughs> so I think his he has these moments of redemption throughout the film. One, when he reconciles with Captain America after spending years having this animosity between them. The, the second, which is when he finally starts to feel like he has had some kind of victories when he sees that Peter is alive. Because he's obviously always felt this kind of paternal love for him. And that takes a massive weight off him, in a way. But then finally making the decision to put the greater good first, ahead of himself and his family, really, is the natural end for a character who began as a selfish arms dealer and had to learn over a very long period of time how to care about anybody else. So those are the, the main characters. But I think there's a few others who have some quite important character development in the movie. So Nebula in particular, I felt that if anyone other than Tony was going to take out Thanos, it was going to be Nebula. But ultimately her confrontation wasn't with him, her confrontation was with herself. Well, specifically her past self, who had been so emotionally crushed mm. by Thanos's behaviour, and that it was reuniting with Gamora and instigating the friendship again as with nat and barton and as with hulk and thor she is paying back to gamora what gamora gave to her that in the original timeline it was gamora who first held out the hand of friendship to her to say you know you don't have to be this way we can fight him together and now she's paying that back to past gamora and saying i know that you don't really want to stand by him so let's go and do something about it. We became sisters, so we can do it again. It's it's that narrative coming full circle. And ultimately, it was about her confronting herself in order to move forward with her life and with her sister. And, and I think Ant-Man becomes obviously a more prominent character here. Um, he's only really featured in his own films, and he has that big scene very briefly in in berlin in civil war for example but 
up until this point, you've only really seen him as somebody who's worked under the supervision or tutelage of others. You know, he's relied on other people. And I think what's interesting at the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp, all that, like his support network is taken away. And it's interesting that a character who comes across as slightly goofy and, and the comic relief in the other movies has to step up a little bit and become more capable of looking after himself and actually rising to the status of actually being one of the Avengers. Clearly a group that he aspires to be amongst, but he doesn't see himself as that yet. He sees them as like the real Avengers. and He's somebody who's kind of a, a junior Avenger almost. But going back to that first scene where he sees Cassie, for example, you realise at that moment that he realises the severity of what has happened in the last five years for people who weren't involved in the snap. And it's it almost feels like it's his love for his daughter that makes him realise that he has to do something. I think that's what sort of comes across. He's still a goofy character at the beginning of Endgame. You know, he returns, you know, through the quirk of fate of the rat scurrying along the control pad. He gets fired out of the back of the van to a pile of boxes. He has the comic relief scene where he interacts with, you know, Chang from Community, <laughs> you know, who's like the suspicious security guard. He has his taco blown out of his hand. Yeah, he still has those moments. But I think it's the fact that he realises that he is going to have to do something where he is going to have to take the initiative. And the fact that it's his idea to do this time travel thing, the fact he volunteers it, even though he doesn't exactly know how it's going to work, he becomes a critical character because he ultimately comes up with the plan. Mm -hmm. It's the others who make it happen, but there's a feeling in this film that some of the other characters who are clearly going to become more prominent members of the Avengers, maybe, are the ones who have to kind of rise above where they are now to actually become, you know, real heroes. And I think in this case, you know, he shows a lot of skill, a lot of guidance. If you take the moment when he embraces his daughter at the beginning of the film, it's the start of his journey here. The moment at the end where he's sitting on the porch with Cassie and with Hope as well, that's kind of the end of his arc in this movie. But it shows that he's now settled into that role. He's actually now been part of a significant event. It means that lots of the characters, not just the main six Avengers or whatever, are given the chance to show their worth as part of the next generation, much in the same way that Falcon didn't have too much to do in this film, but ultimately he gets given the shield. And so you know that there's potential for him as well. So I think the only thing that remains... You, our listeners who are looking at the clock will be glad to hear is the whole concept of time travel mm. right so I, I was thinking about this a lot this afternoon I couldn't stop thinking about it basically if you think of the, the the basic time travel paradox right which is the grandfather paradox where you go back in time and murder your own grandfather therefore you could never be born therefore you could never go back in time to murder your own grandfather therefore you are born and on and on and on and on it is, in essence, a Mobius strip, because if you follow the logical conclusion of it, it just keeps going around and around and around and around. There is one, it is a one-sided object. It never stops going back around on itself. So a, a Mobius strip shaped like an infinity symbol just keeps going from Granada's alive, so you're alive, so you go back, so Granada's dead, so you are not alive, therefore you're 
if you tear up a piece of paper and form it into a Mobius strip, I promise it makes sense. <laughs> but that only makes sense if time functions in a, in a loop across that one short period of existence, but it doesn't. Because as the Ancient One explains, you know, time is this massive flowing thing and it requires the stones in order to keep it secure. And so you can have these offshoots in time if the infinity stones are not around. Right, so, so here's my theory about why this works with what Bruce says about how time travel works. That if you go back to the past, you, in your linear time frame, are still moving forward. So this is still your present. And therefore, if you follow that in a Mobius strip, where let's say you go back in time and you take Thanos out of the time stream in 2014, right? So therefore, he never kills anyone in 2018, so therefore you don't go back in time, so therefore he doesn't come out of the time stream in 2014, therefore he does kill everyone in 2018, therefore you do go back in time, therefore... And it, it's... As cause and effect, it is the same as the grandfather paradox, because if Thanos suddenly disappears in 2014 and never goes back, then he doesn't kill everyone in 2018. Therefore, in 2023, you don't go back to 2014. Therefore, he doesn't come to the future. It's a narrative grandfather paradox, right? But if you now imagine a Mobius strip, which, despite having only one surface, still fits into the flow of time before and after it, and I think that this is what Bruce was talking about, is that you go back and you keep flowing forward in your own timeline as the Mobius strip curls back around, goes into the past, curls back around again, and returns you to the exact point where you left when everything is as you left it. Hmm. Because that, and then continues to flow forward in the river of time, then putting that into the context of the grandfather paradox, you leave the time stream, you go back on the Mobius strip, it intersects with your grandfather, you kill them, you go back on the uh, on the Mobius strip, continuing to move forward because it's one-sided, but it curls back on itself the other way, and you arrive back in the present at a point where your grandfather did live because you've been around the entire Mobius strip, including the reality where you didn't exist, therefore you didn't go back in time. Mm. So you are there, and you are only ever moving forward but you have gone back, but it has undone itself at the point where you rejoin the future. I don't know if I'm explaining any of this in a way that makes sense. I might need paper and glue and uh, <laughs> a YouTube channel. <laughs> but I, I swear I think this makes sense. And I think this is what Banner is talking about, about the fact that you can only ever move forward. Therefore, even if mm. you're in 1970, it's still your future mm. and you can't change your past, which is everything that's already happened. You could only you could only change what has happened using the stones. Because mm. they're the basis of reality anyway. Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that the point of what the ancient one is talking about, though? Yeah. Because very specifically, it's not about time specifically. It's about the integrity of the reality we know relies on the infinity stones. So only through interfering with them can you probably alter reality and time in a permanent sense that affects 
the forward trajectory that, that you're actually on by going back in time and actually you know killing your grandfather all that nonsense mm. but the whole point is i think it's the critical description that banner gives to the ancient one which is about the fact that we have to put the stones back to the exact same point where they were taken from because that essentially keeps the loop going yeah yeah and i don't know how steve does that because he's got a time machine but he hasn't got a spaceship how does he get to morag how does he get to vormir <laughs> Um, maybe the ancient one can conjure a few portals for him to go mm. through. But then that makes me question why Doctor Strange didn't just conjure them up a portal when they were on Titan so they could all go back to Earth. Maybe he was just being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he knew that that was the way that it had to play out. But that's the thing. I think you can get away with a lot of plot points in this film by, one, using the version of time travel that they describe mm. and two relying on the fact that you say that it all has to play out in that one of 14 odd million ways it has to go in this direction so yeah there are lots of things that could happen that might have that might have made it easier but ultimately what he's trying to do is trigger a series of events that leads to ultimately in the future everything being restored yeah without a virtual retcon of the events we've already seen. Yeah. And I think this is why when Steve goes back to be with Peggy, if it was just going back in time to do a thing or, or get a thing or whatever, and then coming back to the future again through the quantum realm, it would be on the same Mobius strip that takes you back to the future in the reality in which everything was exactly as you left it, even if you are different because you have experienced that time loop. By going back, but not coming back through the quantum realm, he has to come back. He's just come back very, very slowly through mm. the actual passage of time. But I think that the Moby strip still has to complete itself because the events still have to un have unfolded the way that they did in order for him to have ever gone back. Mm. So I think that he experiences this life on the other side of the Mobius strip the side that we don't see, even though it is one-sided. You just have to ignore Euclidean geometry for a minute. He experiences this life, but I do question whether, when he again reaches the point in 2023 when he left, which should be the point that completes the Mobius strip and brings him back to the point where everything was as it was, does that life that he had now only exist in his memory? Because time is still flowing in the way that it was before. Yeah, I do wonder that because he must be, it's something that he would have experienced, but in the timeline in which we're in throughout this film, with the characters all moving forward and now we're in 2023, for example, it's not something that happened in that timeline, yeah. as it were. It was a splinter timeline, but then he returns to the prime timeline. I'd need a big drink after even thinking about it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I'm not sure that it's ever going to, please everyone the way that his character ended but i do think there is a way of viewing it that says he actually could have gone and done loads of things he could have saved bucky he could have stopped hydra all this stuff but it would have all been undone as the mobius strip resolved itself and took mm. him back to the beginning again in his own constantly moving forward timeline such that nobody would know that it had ever happened except him yeah so what's going to happen now to the Marvel Universe? I don't know. 
I think the one thing that will have to be addressed is the fact that half the world is now five years older (laughs) than the other half. I don't know if that's going to be immediately addressed in Spider-Man Far From Home or there's some other thing that will happen which places that in a different timeline or in the past or pre something. I, I have no idea. But the fact that the trailer... You can look at it now more closely and realise that, look, the two people who were there are Nick Fury and Happy as mm. well. And I think Happy says, you know, you're alone now or something. That that does imply that we're now going to be in the Marvel Universe, at least in Spider-Man Far From Home, in 2023, I suppose. Yeah. And, and the fact that Nick Fury appears to be showing up to kind of recruit spider-man in a way to help do stuff implies that fury himself is now looking to the future and saying right what personnel do i now have access to yeah um in a post end game world yeah um i've got to start building up this new network of all of these new heroes in order to keep safeguarding the world and i think you've got a similar problem looking to how with the other announced films you've got questions over how the events of Endgame actually affect them because there's another Black Panther film coming up now. Yeah. What happened to Wakanda in the in the five years when T'Challa wasn't there? So did somebody else take over? Was Wakanda okay? Did it ultimately have to become more outward facing uh, in response to the fact that the world had changed dramatically? I think that you know there's something in that story that I think has to play out because they can't keep doing films for the next few years which are set in a post-snap world, deliberately in a world when they've said that it's five years ahead, the snap happened and everyone came back, rather than time was frozen at the point of the snap and and that hasn't been an effect. So how that plays out, I don't know, but that that could be interesting. I think Guardians is going to be maybe a window into looking into how that story plays out, but in the universe. Because it's clear that Captain Marvel is involved in that conversation about the snap affecting the whole universe. Hmm. So I'd be intrigued to know how they deal with that. I think you can only deal with it with the characters who are involved in proper space travel. So that's going to be the Asgardians of the galaxy. Um, <laughs> but also, are they going to, how are they going to treat the Gamora problem? You know, the thing about the, the Guardians films, they've always had these, you know, you know, they are space movies, but they've always had a personal story at their heart, often involving Quill. So in this case, is it going to be him trying to find Gamora? It's notable that that she seemed to disappear at the end of the movie. Mm. So is it the fact that he's now going to find her and that's going to change the nature of their relationship in a good way, in a bad way? I think it'd be quite stale if they don't do something interesting with it. I think you're going to obviously have what we had before, which is talking about how Quill and Thor kind of get along with each other. I think like ultimately it's too difficult to have super beings like Thor, who's a god, on Earth. The same problem with Captain Marvel, maybe. Um, and it's starting to show in uh, Endgame. Because maybe they're just too powerful. I think it might be interesting now that Thor is joining the Guardians. Because he won't be tied to Earthbound stories with, obviously, Earthbound foes. And I also wonder if he actually has a more natural rapport with the Guardians than he did with the Earthly Avengers anyway. He was a bit out of place. Which they played, you know, they played for laughs in the dynamic. But it might it might work better to have him sort of going off with a a different team to keep his character moving in an interesting direction their arc could be the thing that opens up the cosmic aspects of of the mcu it's already been introduced in guardians 2 where you have 
Quill's father, who's a celestial, that's all going to come into play again. And isn't there like an Eternals movie coming up that'll probably deal with that whole aspect of, yeah. of things? What I also don't know is whether the use of the Eternals is going to be something which is going to be used. So I know in the coming years they're going to have to introduce the X-Men somehow. If they decide to do it, I don't know. And are they going to introduce the Fantastic Four or anything like that? Now those are all, on one aspect you have the cosmic side that comes from the Fantastic Four. No indication of how that's going to work yet, but I I can imagine that being tied into the Guardians arc in some way. But the other side is, are they going to then bring in the X-Men somehow as well? One thing I do think is really strange is that scene at the end, or near the end in the battle, when, when all the portals open and all the sorcerers led by Doctor Strange are able to transport all of these superheroes in to fight Thanos and his army. Now, to me, that implies that they only brought in the characters who they knew about. Hmm. Because we don't see anyone new there. And yet, that implies that in this world, there is a limited number of superheroes. Otherwise, a Doctor Strange would know who those other superheroes were, and he would bring them in. Even if we didn't know them, it wouldn't matter to the audience. It would matter in the context of the film. Yeah, it's like... Daredevil doesn't show up. Yeah. Luke Cage doesn't show up. <laughs> yeah. But then we can guess why. Yeah. Um, so you kind of wonder how that's going to work. But you think if there's a limit on the number of superheroes in the MCU world at this point, how are they going to deal with having X-Men around? When ultimately there are then thousands of mutants who, who have all these powers. It then becomes really weird yeah. to have had a world in which you have six heroes defending the Earth to them being... You know, a world essentially overrun with, yeah, ostensibly mutants, but some of them essentially are the good ones and then there are the bad ones. And the good ones join forces frequently with uh, the X-Men or fight against them in some way. So it does become kind of confusing how they're going to handle the introduction of other characters. But I think it might already be something which, based on the last 10 years of films, I'm sure they've got mapped out pretty well. And there's also the TV side of things. Yeah, so we're getting a, a Falcon and the Winter Soldier show. Although, will that now be Captain America and the Winter Soldier? <laughs> well, I can imagine a situation where the TV show could be dealing with the Falcon becoming Captain America. Yeah. And then they could do a film, ultimately, or bring them into the films with him established as a new Captain America. Yeah. We're getting a, a Hawkeye series. Which I hope is based on the Matt Fraction series, which if you haven't read is really good. Um, it's Matt Fraction and uh, David Ayer who did that a few years ago now. It's a fantastic series and that'd be really cool because you could imagine, based on the events of Endgame, that Hawkeye remains obviously skilled and a hero, but he retires from the heroic life to maybe do what he does in that Hawkeye series, uh, which is to fight the fight for regular people. He becomes almost like a uh, a non-superpowered, friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man kind of character. Friendly neighborhood Hawkeye. Exactly. <laughs> um, but he deals with like local gangs and things like that. It's a wonderful series. Uh, but it'd be interesting if they take that as their lead. And the fact that they've, in, they've suggested that it's going to be him training up Kate Bishop. You can kind of see a story where he decides to stay maybe with his family. Because they they'll have to warp the comic book mythology you know, to make it work. But he might decide to go back to his family feeling that he's got a second chance after the sacrifice that Nat made and the fact he's back with his family and he will just train up Kate Bishop to be the next Hawkeye, which is another way they could take it, which kind of deals with some of the threads that were later on 
or in the latter half of that original Hawkeye series from a few years back. So it's going to be a Loki series. Now, I think there's a way that you can try and get Loki into 2023. If you imagine that in 2012, he disappears with the Tesseract. He clearly doesn't take it to Thanos, which is what he was meant to do Mm. when he invaded New York, because Thanos doesn't have it in 2014. So he's clearly hopped off with it. Now, a TV series could be about his wacky adventures with the Tesseract between 2012 and 2018. Mm. Or you you could imagine if they if they wanted to find a sneaky way to, to bring him into the present is to say, well, he had the Space Stone and he used it to hop on board Thanos' ship in 2014, come through the time portal to 2023 and then immediately hop off again because he wasn't interested in getting into a fight. You, you could wibbly-wobbly it, mm. or you could just have him running around unredeemed in 2012 with Tesseract, getting up to no good. Yeah, I mean, it, it does depend on whether they decide to look at these splintered realities and use them as the basis of a storyline. Because on one hand, all that stuff potentially does happen in an isolated universe from the prime timeline that we're following. You could also argue that they're going to be very strict with it and say, look, when all the Infinity Stones go back to where they were, we're only now going to follow the prime timeline. So there could be some funny way, like you say, of, of Loki coming back into the storyline. But it'd be interesting to know what they do. But it, is it just going to be a mini-series or a long-running thing? I, mean, I think a lot of these things are going to be short-run, six-episode, ten-episode kind of series. And I can't imagine them running forever because the MCU has a knack of wanting to move on. Mm. It's not going to keep hanging on with these characters unless they evolve sufficiently to become a relevant part of the MCU again. And then the one that confuses me the most is the WandaVision. Um, WandaVision, not one division. Hmm. WandaVision series <laughs> about Scarlet Witch and Vision. Because he is gone. Yeah. He ain't coming back because there's no Mind Stone. Yeah. So how and when and where and huh? Well, it could be that, that prequel set in Glasgow or Edinburgh or whatever it was. <laughs> Where they're just hanging out, having kebabs at that shop yeah, or something. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could be a prequel, but also because, obviously because Scarlet Witch has all these powers, you don't know what the hell's going to happen. Unless there's some way that they activate the, you know, the consciousness of, of Vision in some way without the Mind Stone. But I'm kind of intrigued to know how they do that. It's kind of strange because we obviously, you know, I think we've only got one planned MCU film coming up in Spider Man. Yeah. So when and how these series will filter in is going to be kind of interesting uh, mainly because they're going to be on that new disney sort of streaming service yeah so if not everyone's going to have access to them potentially are they going to make them that integral to the mcu or are they going to make them things which you could watch to enhance the experience but they're not essential and again i'm not sure if the wandavision thing is i can imagine that working as not a completely relevant aspect of how the mcu plays out over the next 10 years but i could see it being one of, like these other shows, almost like a limited series run set within the MCU. And and I would kind of treat some of them more as a send-off for some of these characters who they didn't want to have taking the limelight of Infinity War and Endgame. You know, so maybe they want to have a proper ending for Vision in some way because he wasn't featured at all in Endgame. And they can do that by bringing back the plotline with him and Scarlet Witch as well. Same with Loki. You know, everyone was always... There were so many rumours about Loki not really being dead mm. at the 
start of Infinity War. But actually, depending on how you view, you know, the timelines and how it's all working, it's unclear how that would work. But maybe it would be good to have him have either his own universe where he could, you know, have his own adventures or they'll have something which acts as a send off. But I think you could actually do isolated Loki adventures that could still keep him in the MCU. Whereas I see that less so potentially for Vision. Uh, because he seems to be dead, dead, and they are kind of keeping the characters who were killed by Thanos or or those who were killed in sort of unresurrectable fashions that are completely separate. Mm. And apparently one other movie that they have now confirmed is coming at some point in Phase 4 is going to be a Shang-Chi movie. So clearly they are still going back through the Marvel vaults um, to... to bring out characters who aren't the obvious characters mm. because they know that they can make big successful films without having to just have the same super famous characters all mm. the time yeah i think that'd be really interesting because i'm expecting that now endgame is out give it a bit of time but around the time of san diego comic-con i'm pretty certain they'll, they'll be a bit more open about what their plans are for the next couple of years because they were never shy about telling you the schedule of films for the next couple of years. Um, and I think they just have been deliberately coy because they don't want to reveal how Endgame ends. So I think now they might be in a position to start talking about how at least the first part of Phase 4 is going to shape up. And I think if we start seeing some of the stories to do with the Celestials, I think that could ultimately bring in Fantastic Four, the X-Men, things like that. Um, the TV shows, it might be a bit clearer in the future especially now we know the fates of those characters in Endgame, it might be easier for them to reveal how those TV shows are going to work. And I suppose to finish, it might be good just to talk a little bit about the impact of, of Endgame as a film. Because there have been many attempts to build these franchises, as we were discussing right at the top of the episode, and they haven't really worked. And now I think this really is a template for how to get it right, but it takes time and effort that I'm not sure other studios would would want to do in the same way that 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 Thanos gets the shortcut to the Infinity Stones, they also try to get the shortcut to the team up really quickly, which is why I think you know the Justice League movie just didn't work because you hadn't built up all the characters, and half the solo movies are coming after after <laughs> the main one has happened and things like that. So I think as a film, it shows that you can make proper blockbuster movies, you can make really big cinematic stories which closely adapt sort of comic book ideas and mentality and you can actually now put these things convincingly on screen at the same time it's going to be a long time until people match i think the caliber of what we've seen there's going to be an era now where people know that they were alive during phases one to three of the marvel cinematic universe and it is a really important sort of pop cultural event i think it birthed a way of doing films it brought these superhero movies really to you know you know to the to the forefront of the box office, but I think also it builds on lots of other films that have taken place. You know that there have always been very good superhero movies. We just tend to focus all the time on the ones that don't work rather than ones that do. But you know, going back to you know the original Superman and Superman Two, they had two in a row that worked really well. You know, the original X Men and X Two again, fantastic movies. It falls down when you get to X3 and the ones after that, but they worked. I mean, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, 
still very well regarded. Same with the Tim Burton Batman. I mean, it went off the boil a little bit with Batman Forever and <laughs> you know, Batman and Robin, but you can get these things to work. Yeah, the first two Blade movies as well. Exactly, yeah. So it has been done, and I think it's only off the back of those successes that you're allowed to make these kind of films now. And they didn't always get it right. You know, The Incredible Hulk is not a great movie. Age of Ultron is not a great movie. Thor The Dark World is not a great movie. But they're elevated to a higher status by being part of this body of films. Because I've actually enjoyed watching them more in the run-up to Endgame than I probably did when I watched them the first time. You know, and now I look at it and I think, Infinity War and Endgame, fantastic movies. You know, I'm not going to go and see a film for a while where you're going to openly be hearing people crying during the film. Because mm-hmm. it's really gotten to them. It's not going to have you feeling genuinely concerned for characters, feeling slightly sick, tearing up, laughing, panicking, being completely emotionally exhausted at the end of it. That's just not going to happen. And as filmmaking goes, I mean, I kind of would be really annoyed if this ends up with one of those things where at the next Oscars it gets like the, all the technical awards and things like that, because it is still a really good film. It's It doesn't function at all as a standalone movie. It unashamedly is the conclusion to a 22-film series. Yeah. You know, most specifically, the conclusion to Infinity War, but all the things that came before, it's there for the fans, really. You can enjoy it if you've never watched the Marvel movies before, but you're not going to really get much out of it. I think that's fair enough. And I think they've made it intentionally like that. And you're going to look at this as like a six-hour movie in the same way that we think about The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. You know, they were revolutionary films in 72 and 74 that changed the way we thought about, you know, how films could be made and, you know, all the legacy that they've had and the inspirations they've had. A lot of things will follow on from this. And I do hope the MCU retains that standard. But I also think that there's something to be savoured in this first set of 22 films as the pop cultural event for this era, I think. Which, to me, exceeds things like Lord of the Rings. Mm. You know, No film has sustained this number for this long. It's done it quickly as well. But the effort that goes into it means that you know, you see how it takes them five years to make a Bond film these days. <laughs> okay. And I think it's ironic that they had that Bond press conference on the same day that Endgame opened because nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. I'm not a huge Bond fan, to be honest, but that, fil- that film series has not changed and I have never been particularly partial to it. I've seen a lot of them, not all of them, but they, they, have, they are consistently flubbing that franchise by not changing it, by keeping it the same, by doing the same old, same old things. Whereas if you really want to push that franchise forward, you have to be thinking about how something evolves. You can't just be hoping that there's an inbuilt audience for it over, you know, the time from what, 19, was it the, you know, the early 60s when Doctor mm-hmm. No came out? I mean, yes, it's, it's lasted a very long time, but 25 films in 50 odd years... <laughs> It's okay, but it's very hit and miss. Whereas I think the MCU films, to me, they've meant a lot because, you know what, 22 films in 11 years, which have always been appointment movies for me, you know, which I can't say about everything anymore. They they may not be the greatest movies ever made, I'm not saying that, but as the films where you know that you're going to watch them, day of release, week of release, you'll yeah. rewatch them, very few films do that these days. And I think it's a credit to sort of everyone involved 
in these movies that they've created something that is that important and and will have that much of a long-lasting effect on um, sort of blockbuster cinema to come. Yeah, and I, I think an awful lot of its success ultimately comes down to the casting, often some quite risky casting that they put into it from the beginning. Um, if you compare what Universal tried to do with those monster movies, which I now don't even know if they're making anymore. Yeah, they're all finished. After after one, they shut the whole thing down. Yeah, they, yeah. they, they plan to do a whole universe of them and they're all going to cross over. But their idea of who was going to be in them was all people who've been around for decades mm. and are super expensive. And then they come out of the blocks with this really dreary Tom Cruise vehicle, which must have made some money, but clearly not enough for them to carry on with it. And it's all dead in the water. Whereas with this, there was some very risky casting early on. I mean, casting Robert Downey Jr. was a risk to begin with. But then nobody knew who Chris Hemsworth was if they didn't watch Home and Away. Mm. You know, um, putting Mark Ruffalo in in place of Edward Norton is not an obvious choice for you know a blockbuster. Chris Evans had already been in a couple of not-that-great superhero films as somebody else entirely within the Marvel Universe, albeit not in the MCU because Fantastic Four is owned elsewhere. Taking those early risks with the way that they cast it has paid off in the long run, but they could, if they had started out with Iron Man thinking we want to build a franchise here, this can last for ages, they would not have hired Robert Downey Jr. They just wouldn't have done because it would have been considered too risky. And and then it wouldn't have worked out. It was that 14 million to one shot where everything just worked out the way that it should. If you were expecting it to end up this big, you wouldn't have done it the way that you did from the beginning. It's like when Doctor Strange tells Tony, if I tell you what's meant to happen for the 14 million to one to come true, it won't happen. And I think that would have been true at the beginning, that if you told Marvel at the beginning that this was what's going to happen, it wouldn't have happened because mm. they wouldn't have stumbled through those early films making the decisions that they did. Mm. And I think the additional aspect of this that I think we may not see for a long time, but hopefully people will learn from it, is you've got to keep films quiet sometimes. Yeah. I think the problem with a film like Endgame is a lot of the effect upon first seeing it, really is not knowing what's happened. Not knowing how it's going to play out. And the second time when you watch it, and there are people who are in the cinema who are watching it the first time, you can see their reactions to it. It's incredible to see a film make people respond in that way, simply because they didn't know anything about it going in. You know, minimal trailers, um, sometimes quite misleading ones, you know, (laughs) but ultimately there are aspects of the film that you have to see to have the the overall effect you could essentially have known some of these plot twists in advance and it would have really undermined i think your appreciation of it i think if you go into it knowing that tony stark's gonna die that's terrible you know that ruins the whole thing because that's where the art goes silly things like the fact that you know they bring thor back in this film obviously but he's a different thought than the one we saw in Infinity War. He's slightly overweight. And they make a few jokes about it, some of which land, some of which don't. But they move on from that very quickly because ultimately Thor's art for somebody who's so self-confident is about somebody who becomes comfortable with himself. Mm. But to be fair, what's kind of interesting when they have these moments where 
uh, one of the other characters makes some kind of fat joke about Thor. Thor himself doesn't show any embarrassment or self-consciousness over his physical appearance. And I think it's kind of a nice, more positive message about the fact that he's not ashamed of his sort of physical change that's happened as a result of him sort of feeling quite depressed over the previous five years. There are things that they do in this film that you cannot have ruined for you. You know, the fact that Thanos is, well, current Thanos is killed within 15 minutes. I mean, I had no idea you know, what that was about. And I honestly thought, are they going to bring him back or not? I wasn't really sure for a bit. No, but there are decisions that they're making which are part of proper storytelling, which is what keeps you re- being reeled in is not knowing what's happening next. But also, a good story often has a good ending. And I think this is a very well-constructed story with a real ending. You know, at the end of at the end of Endgame, you feel like you've reached the end of the film. It doesn't feel like there's more left to explore within this plotline. There are lots of things which you think might happen, but unlike all the other MCU movies until now, I don't have an urge to go, oh, what happens to that character, or that character, or that character? Because they all are in the right place at the end. And yeah, I think for that reason as well, it's it's a fantastic film. So I think that just about wraps it up. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've spoken for almost as long as the film itself lasted, and that was a long film, even if it didn't feel like it. That's one of the benefits of doing a podcast, is that you can prattle on about things <laughs> that you enjoy. But yeah, it was it was a great film. We thought it'd be really fun to talk about it. Um, we hope you've enjoyed listening. Do let us know what you thought about Endgame. Obviously, there's heavy spoilers throughout the episode, and if you do decide to tweet us back and say things please be mindful of spoilers for example yeah uh, because um, people might not have seen it yet etc yeah so dm us if you want to send us any comments that are going to be openly spoilery for people Mm -hmm. who haven't had the chance to see it yet yeah I i think the moratorium on spoilers will will pass after a few weeks but uh yeah it was just really fun to talk about it and i think it's a great film it's one of those films that you just want to dissect and chat about afterwards and i think people will be talking about it for a long time certainly until you know the next later films um are announced that will probably give us an indication of where things are going yeah but what i feel like doing right now is uh going back and watching the original iron man film again <laughs> <laughs> back where it all began yes uh so that's all from us this time do get in touch on twitter at tfcaa on the facebook page time for cakes now or on our website timeforcakesnail.com Yeah, we'll be back soon, um, either with more Cakes and Ale episodes or Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes or Tally Ho episodes. But for now, from Time for Cakes and Ale, be be seeing seeing you. you.